Welcome to the Christchurch Manchester Theology Podcast. The CCM School of Theology meets monthly on Saturday mornings at Luther King House in Manchester. For more information about the training that we offer or about our church in Manchester, please visit www.christchurchmanchester.com. Oh, fantastic. It is great to be back with you. Um, yeah, uh, it feels like only two months ago I was here. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, it was wonderful to be here. So, um, but you had Genesis last month, and um, how, how was that? Good. Good? Good. Okay, so how old is the earth and how was it made? <laughs> no takers? <laughs> um, okay, it's always a bit funny, like, coming in to do... So, I mean, I do this all the time. Like, you come into a course, I don't know what the guy taught before. I'm going to have a rough idea, because I know what I would teach if I were going through Genesis, and I have read it once or twice. Um, but, uh, but it actually just helps me to know, what did you take away from it? So, um, <laughs> forget the age of the earth. Uh, but, like... Just, just help me out. A few things that maybe were light bulb moments for you or things that have stuck in your mind since you uh, learnt about Genesis last month. Um, any particular thoughts? Or just like key themes? Or, yeah. So kind of the second half was a lot of like, um, rest and Sabbath and mm. working and our relationship with those things. And that was something that stuck with me throughout the rest of the month. Great. Quite early Sabbath, what was my understanding of yeah. Fantastic. And that made a, has made a practical difference in your, yeah. That's yeah. great. And also, he um, said that Sabbath was actually, we tend to think of it as that's like only a uh, solo thing, that kind of going off. Mm. Mm. But he was talking about how actually a lot of Sabbath in the Bible is um, community. Yeah. 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 Fantastic. Great. So Sabbath is a key theme. Yeah. Any other takeaways uh, on Genesis, particular things that struck you or um, or would anyone attempt to summarize the book of Genesis in a sentence or two? God said. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah, that's a fairly key bit. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's a good point he raised about us being in the image of God mm. and then actually caring yeah so the image of god is not just about sort of looking like him in some way it's actually got a, a function to it uh, doing something yeah yeah great we'll pick that up again i mean this is why i'm asking you is because we're going to pick up some of these themes again so i want them in the forefront of your mind yeah i also gave a small book from what i've read and um, what thought struck me was um, the, uh, the autonomy of man Right. We have the option to follow God's sort of definition of good and evil yeah. for our own. And then once we follow our own, yeah. um, the rise and fall of man. Yeah. Cycle. Yeah, great. Yes, so that's, it wasn't just Adam and Eve made a mistake, everyone else was fine. <laughs> like, right the way through Genesis, again and again and again, these cycles of people just disobeying God and thinking that they know best and um, doing what is right in their own eyes and so on. Yeah, great. I, I was just struck. <clears throat> I've read Joseph so many times, mm. you know, you, you, I've seen the play, you know. <laughs> and, and right at the end of Genesis, Joseph says, you know, when his brothers think they're going to, yeah. you know, get, get his own back now, yeah. now his dad's died, he said, you know, look, no, am I in God's place? Yeah, <laughs> and yeah. And those words just jumped out at me and said, 
yeah, we've that's amazing. constantly got to think, are we as, as people in the place of God, spiritually, physically, yeah. emotionally? Yeah. And that, that really spoke to me. Fantastic. And it's great, isn't it, to put yourself in the story in that sense and to see, see something of yourself reflected. Because I think Genesis, and we're going to see Exodus as well, it reflects something of humanity back to us. It doesn't just talk about a few people who made a few mistakes or, or some successes back then. It actually is like a mirror that reflects back to us um, something of our humanity. And, yeah, Wonderful. Well, we're going to pick up um, the story from the end of Genesis right onwards, actually. Um, so that's kind of why I wanted you to think through those things. And what we're going to try and do this morning is basically teach the way all the way through the story of Exodus. Uh, just so you know, I've never actually taught this full day before, so this will be new for me. And I'm sure that I will learn loads as I have done preparing for this day. And broadly, what we're going to do is look at it in two sections. So uh, we'll look at the first half <laughs> and then the second half. How profound. Um, LAUGHTER uh, Oh, <laughs> you're in for a treat today. Now we'll look at the, the, the first half up to chapter 15. Um, and then actually, as, as you go through this course, you generally look at a book and then a theme as well. What I've done is sort of fudge it a little bit by looking at the theme whilst looking at the second half of the book, because I think that's where the theme comes through a lot. So we, we're going to kind of give you an overview of Exodus, mainly focus on 1 to 15. And then in the second half, we will look at the idea of the character of God and how that is revealed through this book as a whole. You're going to need the book of Exodus open in front of you because we are going to work our way through most of it. Um, and here's a question for you. What is the first word of the book of Exodus? These. Chapter one. <laughs> a giant, bold one. Um, these. Has everyone else got these as the first word? Great. That is not the first word of the book of Exodus. <laughs> that is the first word of the book of Exodus in English, not in Hebrew. And I promise I'm not going to work through one, one word at a time, don't worry. But have you got a different word? Now. now. Okay, that's close. Yours says now as well. Closer, yes. It's actually and. The first word of the book of Exodus in Hebrew is the word and, which is not how you start a book. I don't know if you've ever read a novel that started with the word and. That's not how you start. But it might be how you start a new chapter or a new paragraph. And I think that's important because in our, in our Bible here, we get the impression this is a separate book. But no, 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 it literally picks up from the sentence before or the story before, and it's a continuation. And understanding the book of Exodus as a continuation of Genesis, I think, is really important. So, um, <clears throat> page two of your notes. Here is an introduction to Genesis, the road to Egypt, uh, a recap of the story so far. There's loads that we could say to recap Genesis. I'm not going to do that because uh, I'm sure that Neil did a great job last time. But just to remind you of a few bits, uh, we get in, in Genesis the story of Abraham. And one of the key things for Abraham is the giving of the covenant. Uh, in Genesis chapter 12, God gives this covenant and he promises Abraham that uh, he will have offspring, land, he will be blessed in order to be a blessing, and that nations that bless Israel will be blessed and nations that curse Israel will be cursed. Obviously, we're going to see some of that play out in this book today. Then in chapter 15, there's this strange moment, which I'll just sort of throw out there and we'll come back to you, where God confirms the covenant. And can anyone remember how he does it? How does God confirm the covenant? Um, he, he cuts, well, says Abraham to cut animals in half, and he, um, he puts Abraham to sleep while he himself 
walks through the mm. sacrifice. Yeah, and how does he do it? How does he walk through? In what form? It's <coughs> fire, isn't it? Yeah. Fire, okay. Yeah, yeah, so there's this strange covenant, covenant ceremony where this animal's cut in half. You've got these two, like, bloody walls of death. Like, it's a pretty gruesome image, isn't it? And then this flame goes through it. And somehow it's this symbol to Abraham about uh, God's commitment to his covenant. Uh, and, and possibly there's a covenant ritual where God is saying, like, if the covenant is broken, then this death will be upon the one who's broken it. Something of that tied up within it. And then within the context of that, Genesis 15, 13 to 16, God says this, For 400 years, your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated there. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterwards you will come out, or they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. So within the context of this giving of the covenant, confirmation of the covenant, God says there's going to be 400 years and your people are going to be enslaved, but actually I'm not done with your people. They will come back out of slavery. I will rescue them. Uh, And there seems to be some sort of reason for God delaying, which is that evil has not yet reached its full potential enough to be completely crushed. So God sort of says this all within the Abraham story. We're not going to sort of dig completely deeply into that, but just keep those things in your mind as we go into the Exodus story. So the next thing to notice is that Egypt doesn't just appear in Exodus. Actually, it's there mentioned in the Abraham story, in the Genesis story. So at chapter 12, God rescued Abraham from Egypt when he went down there without permission. And how did he do it? He did so by sending plagues upon Pharaoh. And when Abraham left, he took with him great possessions. Sound familiar at all? <laughs> it's basically a prefiguring of what we're about to read in a much longer form in the book of Exodus. In Genesis 26, God warned Isaac not to go into Egypt. So there's, there's already Egypt is set up in the book of Genesis as being this powerful place that the people of God don't really want to be. Um, but God has already miraculously delivered Abraham Abraham from this nation of Egypt. It's worth noticing as well that most of the times, if not all of the times, when Genesis talks about going to Egypt, it talks about going down into Egypt, despite the fact it's actually kind of west into Egypt. (laughs) Um, Why might that be? It's just sort of log that. We'll come back to it. We see that again in the Joseph story, actually. Um, Joseph, Genesis 46, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down into Egypt. So there's something different here. God warned Isaac not to go into Egypt, but actually in the Joseph story, God's saying, okay, don't be afraid to go in now. Something has changed about the time. Uh, But don't be afraid to go down to Egypt, for I will make you into a great nation there. I will go down to Egypt with you, and I will surely bring you back again. Genesis 47, the land of Egypt is before you settle your father and brothers in the best part of the land. So the the people of God end up going into Egypt, down into Egypt in the Joseph story. And we're told um, at the end of Genesis 46 uh, that there were 70 of them. Actually, it sort of differs. We don't know if it's 70 to 75. If you look at Genesis 46, Exodus 1 and Deuteronomy and Acts, there are slightly different numbers. But it's somewhere around the 70 to 75 number. So this is, broadly speaking, the road that took them to Egypt. It began with a prophecy and a covenant, a warning, don't go down there. And then actually, when the time had come for Joseph, he and his family ended up going down there with the promise that God would go down there with 
them and would bring them back and would make them a great nation there in order to fulfill all his great plans and purposes. And of course, there's loads more that we could um, look at. But that sort of takes us up to Exodus 1. And then you turn the page, you get to Exodus, and in the English Bible, these are the names. In the Hebrew, it's and, these are the names. So this is a direct continuation of the story of Genesis. Would someone read for us um, Exodus 1, 1 to 8? Any volunteers? These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah. This is how it's entered Benjamin, Dad, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt, then Joseph died, and all his brothers and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. Mm, fantastic. So, uh, well done for getting through the names. It's not the worst list of names I could have given you in the Bible, but um, well done. Um, that's why I didn't want to read this passage out. <laughs> Someone else. So you now know if I ask for people to read, that's why. Um, think about the language of the opening there. Does, does any of the language sound familiar to anything you might have heard in the book of Genesis? Fruitful and multiplied. Mm, what does that remind you of? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's real, like Eden language, isn't it? Yeah. In fact, so this verse actually uses five separate Hebrew verbs to describe the the baby boom, um, which which really emphasises the extreme level of growth these people have continued. They've actually been able to do, even in oppression, they've been able to do what God had created them to do. Um, and I think the, the 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 five verbs. And the picking up of the, the language and the extremity of the growth from 70 to masses um, shows that really this is not just natural growth. Like they are experiencing God's blessing even in this place of oppression. Yeah. But doesn't it also echo the blessing God gave Yes, absolutely. Yeah, definitely. So I think those are the two references here that the beginning of Exodus begins with. It's Genesis uh, 1, it's, uh, or 2, 1 and 2. Um, it's the creation mandate, um, and it's also the Abraham story. So it's like God is still inviting people to be fruitful and to multiply, um, but with the purpose that, as he promised to Abraham, they would actually become a great nation and be blessed to be a blessing. Yeah, absolutely. And so I think Exodus is, is starting with both of these things to remind us, hey, despite everything that's gone wrong, God's plan is still on track. Great. That's eight verses. <laughs> we got a long way to go. <laughs> um, so, uh, quick exercise. Um, maybe to turn to people on your table and have a quick discussion, only like two or three minutes, not asking for anything like really uh, much longer than that. But any thoughts on how you might summarise the story of Exodus, assuming you've read the story. And if you haven't, that's fine. We will cover it uh, quite quickly today. But if you, just from what you know, have you watched the stage play or the film or read the book, uh, how would you summarise the book of Exodus and some of the key themes? Let's take two or three minutes on your tables and discuss that. Okay. Who would... Um, who would be happy just to throw out a few thoughts? You don't have to say 
the whole thing, uh, but just maybe like a quick summary or some key themes that, that stand out to you from the book of Exodus as you know it. Grumbling. Grumbling. <laughs> yep, there's a lot of that. Sorry, two? Two halves. Two halves. Okay. It's a game of two halves. And um, how, how do the two halves work? The first half, oppression, crying out to God, God sending a deliverer, deliverance. Great. Yeah! <laughs> Second half? Second half. This is Grumbling. <laughs> yeah, okay. Yes. Great. It's sort of God defining the nation, isn't it? Mm. This is the people that he's chosen for himself. Yeah. He, he sets out how they're to live. So Great. What to be like. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, fantastic. Mercy. And, sorry? Mercy. Mercy, yep, yep. Complete dependence on God. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Or a te teaching. Yes, exactly. <laughs> do they do it? <laughs> like, do they rely on him? Yeah. The, fa the fascinating thing is that, like, there are so many positive themes and so many instances of failure <laughs> again and again. Um, so, 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 yeah. 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 We had cucumbers there. <laughs> I like cucumbers, but I'm not willing to go back. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. How to build a tent? How to build a Yes. Absolutely. Yeah. That is the main. Takeaway from today, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Actually, do you reckon that the Apostle Paul, as a tent maker, do you reckon he was just making replicas of the tabernacle? <laughs> that would be incredibly costly and time-consuming business, but there you go. Um, fantastic. Okay, so great. Um, turn to the next page, and you will see basically the the, the book of Exodus mapped out. Um, you're right, it, it is a story of two halves, and people divide it slightly differently. So some people divide it sort of 1 to 18, 19 to 40. Some people say 1 to 15, 16 to 40. That's how I've divided it here. And essentially, I've summarized it as 1 to 15, God's mission to get his people out of Egypt. 16 to 40, God's mission to get Egypt out of his people, which is essentially saying God needed to rescue his people from this oppression. But once they were rescued, he then needed to form them into a nation that lived as he wanted to, he wanted them to, and he also needed to get out of them so much that Egypt had put into them, and actually arguably had been in them since the fall as well. And the, the horrible thing is that despite the mercy of God and the instructions of God, regularly they end up longing to go back to Egypt, or even if they're not longing to go back there, they seem to exhibit certain tendencies of Pharaoh and... Um, yeah, and all their forefathers that we've seen in the book of Genesis, actually. Regular rebellion against God. So, but that's a rough sort of division of, uh, of, of the two. Sorry, did someone? No, I was just saying, it seems to have very short memories. Yes. Yeah. Moses goes up a mountain to get the same. Yeah. Oh, but the calf. Yeah, yeah. I don't know what's happened to this Moses. Yeah. Yeah, Absolutely. <laughs> so, quick, so, quick thought, though. It's just like uh, what, what does that make you feel? Like, do you, when you read that, do you look at... Yeah. <laughs> I'm not the only one. Okay, yeah, 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 yeah. So relieved that you're not the only one. And I was saying this morning that I felt almost have to remind, remind myself, because it's easy to go, oh, they were so disobedient, and go, oh, I would be exactly this. Right, right. <laughs> it's humankind. But that's funny, isn't it? Like, because there are some times when I read this book and, uh, and other books as well, and I go, oh seriously you're so dumb <laughs> you've just seen this incredible miracle like how could you oh i would never do that and then as soon as i find myself thinking that i think oh no i would do that yeah <laughs> i absolutely would and i think that's exactly what the book is is creating within you which is which is why actually i mean i like dividing it up to one to 15 
so you end on a high, which is the going through the sea. But actually, I think there is an inherent logic to dividing it at 18, which is that you, you go through the sea and you say, yes, and then what do you immediately happen? They, they grumble. And, and so you're confronted with this sort of, Oh, celebration and then failure and then you're like you judge them and then you catch yourself judging them and you realize that I in the process of judging these people and doing the very same thing and, and, and I think this is the point of how we're meant to read these things they are like a mirror holding up to us um, something of our own yeah reality yeah fantastic I mean this page we may dip back to from time to time when we need to get a sense of where we are in the story um, but let's go to the next page and I want to introduce three key themes that come through the book and these are the themes of sun service and sea sun with an o sorry sun and sea getting you dreaming of holidays but no 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 sun with an o sun service and sea um let me introduce these, two, these three themes, and we're going to see that they actually come through right through the whole book. Um, the word sun is a really regular word that comes up all the way through this book, only we probably don't notice it because it's often not translated sun in our English Bibles. But it's the Hebrew word ben, uh, meaning sun, and it's often translated simply people or uh, the phrase ben Israel which literally means sons of Israel, is simply translated Israelites. So we read through and it's, it talks lots about people and the Israelites, but actually most of the time it's God's son or the sons of Israel. And I think that's really important. The word son is a hugely, uh, it's, it's a real key theme that runs through this book, actually, as it runs through the whole of the Old Testament. Uh, to be clear, um, it's a gender inclusive term. Um, so women who lived within Israel were also counted as among the sons of Israel. Um, and it's a, it's a plural term as well. So it can be used sometimes of Israel as a son, as a whole, despite being made up of many, many people. Um, but also it talks of the sons of Israel, uh, plural. Let me just read through a couple of, I mean, in fact, actually, it's worth bearing in mind, Genesis 3, 16, just to go back to the very beginning of the Bible, uh, what happens, you get the fall, and then when God pronounces judgment, one of the things he says to the woman and the serpent is that there is going to be a battle between your two seeds, um, and then, I, I think that's, it uses the word seed in 3.15, zero, and then in 3.16, it says the son of the woman, often translated child, but it's actually that word son, is going to crush the head of the serpent. Okay, so think back to Genesis 3.16, the word son is really important there because there is going to be a son who will do battle against the serpent and his offspring. So when we come to the book of Exodus and the word son comes up all the time, I think you're meant to think, ah, hang on, have we heard about a son before? And I think there are a number of reasons why I think that, and I'll show you a couple as we go through. But if you look at um, Exodus 1, 1 to 22, I won't go through all of this, um, but these are names. these are the names of the sons of Israel it actually is whatever it says in your translation that's that's the word yeah it is actually sons in my translation uh, who went down to Egypt with Jacob each with his family and then it lists them all and I won't do that because Tom did a wonderful job of that verse seven but the Israelites literally sons of Israel were exceedingly fruitful they multiplied greatly Genesis 1 language um verse 8 then a new king to whom Joseph meant nothing came to power in Egypt look he said to his people the Israelites literally sons of Israel have become far too numerous for us come we must deal shrewdly anyone heard the word shrewd before in Genesis what does that remind you of snake yeah 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 do you know what one of the symbols was that would have been on the pharaoh's hat 
snake. <laughs> so you've got this guy who literally bears a snake, who is acting in a snake-like way, who is worried about the uprising of these sons and thinks, what shall I do? I'll crush these sons. So mixed up with the Genesis language of multiplication and fruitfulness, you've got the, the fall and the um, solution to the fall language tied in there as well, which just creates this hope within you. Yeah. I mean, carry on. Verse 12. The e- Egyptians came to dread the Israelites, sons of Israel, and worked them ruthlessly. Um, then what does the king do? He says to the Hebrew midwives, um, when you're helping the Hebrew women during childbirth on the delivery stool, if you see that the baby is a boy, literally son, kill him. But if it is a girl, let her live. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt told them to do. They let the boys live. Um, verse 22, the Pharaoh gave this order to all his people. Every Hebrew son, boy that is born, you must throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. So in the very opening of this book, we get this battle between the sun and the serpent, which is the same battle that we were prophesied about in Genesis 3, 15 to 16. I I would suggest that that is a key theme that we're going to see unpacked right the way through the whole book. So did you have a question? Um, So you said that the sun is gender inclusive, but then in that chapter... Uh, Yeah, sorry, can be. Yeah, killing the sons. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Sorry. I yeah. I should have clarified that. So no. With um with Moses, it's it's clearly referring to him as a male. Um. But when what what I mean to say is when it's used to describe Israel as a whole, it's not just referring to the men within Israel. Um. It's it essentially means children, and it can it can be used as children. Um. And so yeah, when it's used of the whole nation. It's inclusive of women. So, yeah, that's what I mean. Okay, key theme, sun. And actually, these three themes are going to intersect. So we'll come back to that, I'm sure. The second is service. And I put it as service. It should really be slavery because a key theme here is that God rescues the people from slavery, uh, which is an awful thing and a oppressive thing. Um, But actually, I've called it service here, not to minimise that. I don't want to do that at all. But because there is, I think, a dual meaning to the word that is translated slavery here. And it can mean service. It can also actually mean worship. So the Hebrew word avad means to serve, or avadar means service or slavery. It can also mean service in the sense of worshipping, particularly when it's related to God. So Exodus 2, the Israelites, Beni Israel, the sons of Israel, groaned in their slavery, Avodah, and cried out, and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning. He remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. So here's this situation. So we get a bit more of the detail of the situation, which is the serpent king has enslaved the true son the sons of Israel, and they cry out to God, and God hears that, and he decides it's time to step in and to rescue my son. And how does he do that? Well, in order to rescue all his sons from a king who is currently killing sons, very literally, God raises up one particular son, Moses. And we'll come back to that in just a moment. So, There's something to do with this theme of slavery and God rescuing his sons from slavery. Uh, And again, we'll come back to that and see how that plays out in a moment. The third theme, though, is C. Um, 
water in general, but C begins with an S, so I've got three points that begin with an S, so that's why I've gone with that. Uh, but actually, more seriously, um, C in Scripture, we see this in Genesis, but then right through various different stories, C is often a biblical symbol for chaos and evil. It's a place of chaos and evil, uh, and it's, it's a place that chaos and evil often arises from and needs to be quashed, needs to be controlled and restricted. And water is, as we'll see, a major theme that runs through this book. So how is the slaving, the enslaving king dealing with the sons of Israel? What's he doing with them? Very literally. Drowning them in the water. Yeah. So because he's worried about them becoming too fruitful, and essentially whether he knows this or not, I mean, he doesn't know this, he doesn't know God, but like essentially he is trying to quash the promise that the son will come and kill the serpent like he is throwing him into the water casting them into the sea yeah so exodus 2 1 to 4 now a man from the house of levi went and took his as his wife a levite woman the woman conceived and bore a son and when she saw that he was a fine child she hid him three months i mean how you do that with a three-month-old baby i don't know but there you go um when she could hide him no longer she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch she put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank and his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him so a son is born and he is placed into a basket made of reeds now the word for that basket is the hebrew word tevar which only appears twice in the old testament once here and once in genesis 6 which is the story of Noah and it's the the ark so essentially Moses is being put into an ark and pushed out into the waters it's, it's a recapitulation of the Noah story and so you get this I mean imagine what the mother is doing at this point she's putting her baby who she deeply loves and she's putting him into this basket and pushing him out into the water which is a horrifying thing to do and actually, I mean, it's hard to know exactly what was going on, but in the museum in Cairo, there are these um, baskets that are made sort of like this, um, which were apparently often used for funeral rites. And if someone was died, they would be pushed off down the river in one of these things. So maybe she is hoping that people will just think it's what, it, that's what's going on here and they won't worry too much and her baby will get to safety. But still, like, I don't know what she is imagining life is going to be like for this baby who presumably will be ignored and float off down the river. And, like, it's a horrible thing to do. But I wonder if her, in her mind she is thinking of the Noah story and how God in, took this, this remnant, this faithful remnant in an ark and protected that ark and the contents and from that brought deliverance for the people. Like, I'm, I'm sure that would have been in her mind at least if that wasn't in her mind, that's what's in the writer of Exodus's mind. This is a Noah moment. Does that make sense? So it's a way of actually this, this remnant, this son being rescued from and through the sea. Yeah. And so Moses, this son, is cast out into the sea. And chapter 2, verse 10, when the child grew older... Oh, so sorry, what happens here? <laughs> who, finds, who finds Moses? Daughter of Pharaoh, yeah, great. Who then takes him in, and then it says, when the child grew older, she took him... Oh, sorry, actually, someone else. Uh, uh, you know, she is given to be cared for by someone else, who then, when the child grows older, takes him back to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son, and she named him Moses, saying, I drew him out of the water. And that's what the word Moses means. It means to be drawn out. 
Uh, I've got a friend who's a stand-up comedian and a Christian uh, called Paul Carenza, and he says um, that she, she was called Moses, drawn out by the adoptive mother, because if he had been named by his birth mother, he would have been called Duncan, which, <laughs> which is great. <laughs> we won't call him Duncan, but there we go. I couldn't resist. Uh, but yeah, go for it. Yes, yes. Yeah, exactly. So that's, that's a weird irony is the story, isn't it? Like, actually gets to go back to his birth family and then goes into the Pharaoh's court. Yeah. Huh, yeah. 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 Yeah, absolutely. I hadn't thought of that. That's beautiful. Yeah. Duncan. <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> no, I haven't. <laughs> Why have I not? <laughs> yeah, it probably was. Yeah, it's <laughs> quiet. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. So, but it's this beautiful picture, isn't it? That that he's he's named by an Egyptian ruler. <laughs> And in the providence of God is named the very name of what God is about to do to his people to get them out from the Egyptian ruler. Like, so he, as he is drawn out of the water, so the whole people of God are about to be drawn out of Egypt. Yeah, great. Actually, just, I mean, just, just thinking about that. So having lived in and grown up in and probably been educated in the house of the Pharaoh, Moses would have had loads of opportunities he wouldn't have done otherwise. I mean, chances are a Hebrew slave would have been illiterate, um, no opportunities for social mobility, um, probably all sorts of, I mean, they learned the skills of brick building, but like, there's so much that they couldn't have learned um, or done. And yet Moses gains, he's trained by Egypt to gain the skills that he needs to liberate God's people from Egypt. There's a kind of irony in there, which I, I really enjoy as well. Um, what happens next to Moses uh, in chapter 2? He kills an Egyptian. Yeah. Was that a good thing to do? Mm. Okay, so it's a mixed bag, isn't he? So he's God's chosen person, but there's, you know, he's flawed as well. And so as a result, what does he have to do? He flees, yeah. Goes into exile, we might say. Arguably. Yeah, great. Um, and there, chapter three, where does he go? Yeah. yeah, and particularly to a place called, verse one, Horeb, which is a mountain. Fantastic. So let's think about this. So he goes to Mount, to this, to Mount Horeb um, while he is essentially in his exile. Uh, and there he sees, what does he see? Bush. A burning bush. Yeah. Um, which is possibly not unusual, because if you're living in a desert, like things catch light, what was unusual about it? It was burning, but it wasn't burning up. Yeah, it wasn't running out. <laughs> so this, this somehow captures his imagination. Um, let's read it. So he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness, came to Horeb, the mountain of God. The angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses says said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. 
Let's go and get a quick snap for Instagram. It's probably <laughs> we do it these days. Um, just one moment. Uh, and Mo- uh, when the Lord saw that he turned aside, God called to him out of the bush, bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take off your sandals from your feet for the place on which you're standing is holy ground. And if you read through the story to this point, this is the first time in the Hebrew Bible that you come across the word holy, which is kind of a surprise because for us, that's such a big theme, isn't it? Um, but actually, this is the first time you, you meet it. It's not to say that holiness didn't matter in Genesis, um, but this is the first time that this word, which then becomes huge, particularly in the rest of the Moses story, in Leviticus especially, um, this is the first time it is introduced. Um, he meets God, he realises he's in this holy space, and then God reveals things to him. Sorry, do you have a question yeah, or comment? It says he came to Horeb, the mountain of God. Yes. Was it called that before Moses had his experience with the Ten Commandments? Or is that just a written into it? So why do you, why do you ask that particular? I'm just trying to get behind your question. So. No, I'm, I'm just wondering whether it was known as that. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. He went up and got the Ten Commandments. Interesting. So, so when he... Well, we're skipping ahead, which is uh, good. You clearly read the book. Um, so when, when he gets to the, the Ten Commandments, do they call the mountain Horeb at that point? Sinai. Sinai, yeah. So it's actually, it, this place has two names. It's Horeb, it's Sinai, but it's the same mountain. Spoiler alert. Um, but yeah, that's, that's really important to know. Did, was it, it probably was, I don't know. Um, I don't know whether that was a Midianite name or, I'm not sure. Probably, <laughs> is my answer. Uh, but it has a dual name, at least, which is worth logging and bearing in mind. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, yes, question. Uh, that's a quick question about um, chapter 3, verse 2. Verse 2. Hmm. And the Lord came interchangeably. Hmm. It's the angel of the Lord, God, what? <laughs> yeah, what a question, huh? Um, what a question. Um... Let me give you a really quick answer to this, because it could, could take ages otherwise. Like, so often, when the angel of the Lord appears in various different times, it seems to be ambiguous as to whether this is a representative of the Lord or somehow an embodiment of God himself. And people go different ways on it. So some people will say, well, no, he simply bears the name of the Lord and um, in the same sort of way that uh, an ambassador deserves respect as if you were speaking to the king himself, like that's what's going on here. Some people say, no, 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 it's, it's actually more than that. This is somehow a physical embodiment of God. And then some people will say that the angel of the Lord is an embodiment of God, but actually we should see it as a pre-incarnate version of Jesus um, rather than God the Father. I don't know. <laughs> and I think we're meant to feel something about ambiguity, actually. Um, I think at times the angel is probably a representative of God. At times, he seems to be spoken as if it is actually the presence of God himself. I personally think that if he is the embodiment of God, I'm not ready to leap. I think it's a big leap to say, well, it must be Jesus, right? Because Jesus is the one who takes on incarnate form. Because when I read John 1 about the incarnation, to me, it seems like this is the first time this has happened, not something that he's regularly done throughout history. So I'm happy to say that the angel of the Lord may be some kind of embodiment of God, but it's mysterious. And I, I don't know. So it's a tricky one. Do you have a particular thought on that, Tom? Uh-huh. Uh, I, I'm slightly unsure. Yeah. Uh, I, I think there's something that, um, 
notice in the Old Testament that uh, there is this logic of is God and yet distinct from God. So yeah. Yeah. Then when you read, say, John 1, you see mm-hmm. what the New Testament authors do with um, explaining Jesus. Yes. I wonder if they've got something by the angels or maybe mm-hmm. wisdom as well. As mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You've got these Old Testament categories of thoughts set up. Yeah. But then the New Testament authors yeah. have to lean on and try yeah. to explain what happened in the Yeah. That might be a better way than just saying, oh yeah, this was Jesus, yeah. he popped in and then yeah. died again. I think one of the, um, so, and you're absolutely right, and so I think the Old Testament is way more, or the Hebrew Bible, the Hebrew way of thinking, is way more okay with the idea of, sorry, I'm just blinded by this light, the angel of the Lord gleaming through the window, um, I'll just stand up here a bit more, um, is far more okay with using fluid and ambiguous language than we typically like to be, <laughs> um, and, and I think that's an interesting uh, dynamic just to notice. Um, there's a verse in Jude, which talks about Christ leading the people out of um, Egypt. <laughs> um, essentially, it seems like it's saying Christ was the pillar of fire. And, and I'm like, I don't know what to do with that. Because I, I, to me, like, exegetically, I'm like, is that, is that true? But um, I think what I'm learning is that biblical, and we sort of touched on this last time we were here, actually, the biblical writers are far more okay with ambiguity and mystery than I, I typically am. But yeah. Do you think that the same Obviously, a plural. Hmm. So let us make man in our image. Obviously, there is one God. Yeah. But there's a, a plural still the same. Yeah. Around. So obviously, the angel of the Lord. Hmm. God. Yeah. Sort of two, two things for us. Yeah. So. Yeah. So I, I don't know if you cover this in Genesis, quite possibly not, but um, Elohim is a category. I think the best way to think of it is Elohim is a category as in spiritual beings, uh, which is quite a broad category. Um, and I think there are lots of beings that fit within the category of Elohim without being God. And so I think angels, demons can fit within that. There's all sorts of stuff in the Psalms about the divine counsel and Job and that sort of thing. And I, th- I think Elohim, I see Elohim as being in some kind of category. Um, there's a great book called The Unseen Realm by Michael Heiser, which is really good on that if you, if you want to um, sort of look into it. Um, but anyway, we must, must crack on. These are important questions. Uh, and like Moses, good to stop and turn aside and consider them for a moment. There we go. Back into the text. Boom. <laughs> My transitions are just superb. So here we go. Um, <laughs> if I do say so myself. Uh, the funny thing is I know what's coming next, which is Moses going, I'm not good enough to do this job. Yeah, I've just boasted about myself, but there you go. Um, so, so God says, basically, I've raised you up to go and to set my people free. Go and rescue my son. You are the chosen son in order to set my son free from slavery. And what does he do? Five times Moses objects and he refuses. And essentially he says, who am I to do this? Who are you? <laughs> like, how will people know who you are? What if people don't believe me that I've actually met with you? I'm a bad public speaker, I stutter and stammer, and I'm unqualified. Five excuses that he makes. Um, look, look at one of them, 3.11. Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites, the sons of Israel, out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you, and this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship Avad. That's the word used for slavery and service. 
huh, interesting. Um, you will worship God on this mountain. So here we get a sense of what God is about here. Like, my people are being oppressed in wicked slavery, but there is actually a form of worship that no human deserves, um, but I, I want for myself from this people. And so I'm going to send you to rescue my sons so that you come back and worship me on this mountain. Which is not to say that God is going to enslave the people, but rather he is going to bring them into a life-giving relationship, which this other slavery can never be. And he says, this will be the sign to you. It's going to happen. <laughs> now, if I'm asking for a sign for God, generally what's going on in my mind is, I'm not sure if I should do this, Lord. Will you give me a sign? And when I've got the sign, then I'll have the courage to go and do it. And God says, you want a sign? Here's the sign. When it's done, you'll know, <laughs> which is just deeply annoying. <laughs> but, but it tells us something about how God works. Like, have confidence in me. You will come back to this mountain and you will worship together and then you will know. Yeah. But here I think we get a, a real, in, in this verse, 11 to 12, we get a sense of what the true battle is about. It's about God releasing his sons from slavery so that they can come and be in relationship, in service, in worship of him. Uh, in freedom and all that that brings about yeah so this is the battle coming to its head really and and even in chapter four when none of the plagues have yet happened God says this to Moses when you return to Egypt see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders I've given you the power to do but I will harden his heart so he will not let the people go then say to Pharaoh this is what the Lord says Israel is my firstborn son and I told you, let my son go so that he may worship Avad, serve me. But you refuse to let him go, so I will kill your firstborn son. So God already knows how the battle is going to play out. And it's a battle over firstborn sons. And it's God essentially saying to Pharaoh, you have oppressed my firstborn son. Let him go, knowing that Pharaoh won't. And so ultimately, God says, well you've oppressed my firstborn son and if you won't let my firstborn son go then your firstborn son will suffer the, 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 the cost yeah so I think these three themes frame how the story unfolds from this point and particularly chapters 1 to 15 um, it's a battle of getting the son out of slavery and it's often related to water as we shall see yeah okay it's taken us a while. Um, are you okay? Should we do one more bit and then maybe take a little break? You okay to do another bit? Yeah, great. <clears throat> so turn to the next page. <laughs> I'm aware that tables and charts are a little overwhelming for some people. Um, but actually what I try to do here is just distill down lots and lots of narrative into a form that means you can kind of go through this and you can see some patterns that you might not either uh, otherwise and maybe that is that not bringing you alive do you hate yeah, a table no, I'm just, I'm just just turning and seeing, seeing all, all, all the different egyptian gods it's just like right of course that's why <laughs> okay last night. No, no. <laughs> oh oh here we go okay mediation coming in <laughs> you told me last night about the the fact that the magicians were able to do it, but no, it's the, it, 
a connection to yeah. To Great. Anyway, there we go. Brilliant. Okay, so what we I mean what we often find, what we often find actually in these bits of narrative is because they're quite long, and, and if you do like Bible in one year and you do one chapter here and then you do a psalm and a bit of New Testament and then you come back to the next chapter the next day, like sometimes it can take you the best part of a week to get through a bit of narrative like this, having interspersed other bits as well. And you don't always get the flow of the, 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 the narrative. And so what I've tried to do here is hopefully distill it down so you can see some of the patterns that come through this story. And do check it out for yourself. Do go back and read these chapters and check that I'm not just forcing this or making this up. But essentially, with the plagues, um, you get three cycles of plagues with three in each, uh, and then the tenth one is so extreme that it is treated separately. Um, and we'll sort of work through this. I won't go into every detail, but hopefully just show you some of the patterns. But quick, uh, quick thought, quick question. Um, how long do you think this period of the ten plagues lasted? Gut feel. Uh, was it like a week? A plague a week. A plague a week? Okay, so ten weeks. Um, <laughs> 40 something watts. 40 years. 40 days. 40 days. A few months. A few months. Have you ever thought about it? <laughs> no. And we read it in quite a quick. Yeah. I, I always had it in my mind that it was basically one a day, which is like super intense, isn't it? Um, but I, I sort of felt like God was like, let's just get this done. And I think actually it's probably about six months. I mean, we can't be sure, but it's, it's a protracted period of time, which I think is quite important because God is giving Pharaoh plenty of chance to come round to his request, <laughs> demand. But God hardens Yeah, so, well, that's an interesting dynamic. <laughs> right, well, we'll get to that in a second, and Tom will explain that riddle in a minute. <laughs> but this is probably, probably, maybe, let's say six months. Okay, so this is a fairly long protracted period uh, with various different plagues, and we won't go through them all. But as we noted over here, each of them is actually an attack upon an Egyptian god or multiple Egyptian gods. So in Egypt, they had many, many gods that controlled or oversaw various areas of society. And, and Numbers 33, 4 actually says that God was casting judgment upon the gods, right? And I think that's really important because we often think, about the Egyptians who obviously suffered, and it's right to think about their suffering, but it was an attack not primarily upon people, but upon gods who themselves were actually enslaving the people. Yeah. Um, and if you wanted, you could go through them all and see how each of them sort of relates to the plague, or the plague sort of basically undermines the gods' rule over a particular area, whether that is the Nile or fertility or cows <laughs> or whatever it happens to be and there's some debate between people as to which particular god is in mind at different points i'm not saying this is exactly the right one but this is illustrative to show that there were many gods and all of them get systematically taken out by the one true god what strikes me about this is, is that it it's not just that he's trying to demonstrate to the mm. egyptians mm. It, to, to me when i read it mm. i've not seen it before but i thought well They've been enslaved for 400 years. They've possibly forgotten the power of their God. Mm. So he's <laughs> showing through all these things that it was long protracted. Yes. Because you've got 600,000 fighting men and all the women and yeah. children. He's got to get them all out. He's got to get them all to agree to it. Yeah
bear that in mind, and that's, that's a really important point that we'll come back to you, uh, actually, in the, 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 the second half. Brilliant. Let me just race through this, because I'm um, just conscious of time. We won't go through each of the gods, but you're absolutely right. Um, and let me just go through the other columns. So this, uh, I'll just comment on. So in column four, um, what we find in each cycle is the first two, there's a warning. The third one, there's no warning. Uh, and then the tenth, there is a strong warning about the, the death of the firstborn. Um, there's also a, a development in terms of the separation of Israel and Egypt. Um, originally, the Egyptians, um, the, the magicians, they compete with Moses and show that they can do what uh, he can do. And then there's a distinction made between Egypt and Israel. The third cycle only affects Egypt. And then the tenth plague affects all who are not under the blood, um, which in theory should be everyone in Israel gets saved, everyone in Egypt doesn't. Um, but there's a very specific thing. It's not just what nation are you part of. <laughs> uh, it's actually how are you relating to God in this moment that affects how you respond there. Uh, different instruments. So Aaron's staff is important in cycle one. There's no staff mentioned in cycle two. Moses' staff or hand is mentioned in um, three. And then it's the angel of, of death that comes particularly in the 10th one. And then ritual bath. <laughs> this is a, just an interesting one. Um, uh, each of the cycles begins with Pharaoh having a bath, <laughs> which is a little bit weird, or being in water at least. Um, I think that's fascinating because it goes back to the idea of water. And water is a key theme in the book as we've seen, but it's also a key thing in the plagues themselves. So if you think about the plagues, particularly in the first cycle, um, what happens with the Nile? This life-giving water, it's turned to blood, which affected all of life, bathing, cooking, washing, cleaning. And, and it starts while Pharaoh is having a bath, right? So, um, so I think this is telling us something about water um, and how water is a thing of life, but it actually becomes a symbol of death. Then plague two, frogs, uh, which obviously come out of the water. And frogs were weirdly, they were a picture of fertility in the ancient world um, because of this goddess, but they were also associated with the underworld in ancient mythology. So if you've got this place where all your water turns to blood and then there are frogs, which are a symbol of the underworld everywhere, essentially, cycle one is saying that, sorry, hell, yeah, it's basically a place of death or shale, the grave. Uh, Egypt is being shown to be a place of the grave and we'll come back to that. Um, so Pharaoh was in the water, which is actually a foreshadowing of how the story is gonna end. Because what happens to Pharaoh and his people? Crushed in the water, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, in fact, actually, just go back to the instrument thing. This is just interesting, by the by. I haven't put this in the notes. But um, uh, when Moses and Aaron turn their staffs into snakes, the Egyptian magicians do the same thing. Um, and it says that Moses' snake swallows up the other snakes. Do you know where that word swallows up comes again? When the people get swallowed up in the water. Yeah, so again, this is a foreshadowing of what is going to happen to the Egyptian army. Yeah. Um, brilliant. Actually, just one other one. <laughs> there are so many things I want to show you if I had time. Number eight, the locust, actually, brilliant, on the same sort of way. Um, what happens to the locust at the end of the story? They are got rid of by, well, let, let's look at it, actually, 10. A strong wind, yeah. So uh, 10, I think it's verse 18, isn't it? He went out, Moses went out from Pharaoh and pleaded with the Lord, and the Lord turned the wind into a very strong west wind, which lifted the locusts and drove them into the Red Sea. <laughs> 
Now, locusts in the ancient world were a picture of armies. And so we get this army swept by the wind into the Red Sea. So all the way through, God is giving hints as to what is about to happen if Pharaoh continues to harden his heart. Yeah, brilliant. And we could carry on with that. But let's just touch quickly on the heart uh, of Pharaoh. And this is a huge difficult one, isn't it? Like trying to work out what's going on here. I think if you look at it broadly, I'd say one to five, um, we're told that Pharaoh's heart was hardened or Pharaoh hardened his heart broadly. And then six onwards, we're told that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. But we're also told in chapter four, God already knew uh, what was going to happen and he would harden Pharaoh's heart. So what's going on here? Was this Pharaoh's choice? Was this not Pharaoh's choice? I came to the conclusion that I wrote at the end of the book, you know, that um, maybe, you know, to show God's supremacy. Mm. Mm. God actively did it. Yeah. Yeah. I think, it's a, I think it's a mixture, and I think we're meant to live with the ambiguity. And one of the things that I am learning to, to do is to live with the ambiguity that Scripture leaves me with, <laughs> uh, which is not to say that I will just embrace any, any, every thought or ignore hard questions, but I think we're meant to live with something of this tension and not be able to nail it down as clearly as we'd like. But broadly speaking, I think I would say that God's strategy was to perform signs knowing that Pharaoh wouldn't let them go in order to depict his greatness to Egypt so they have no excuse, but also to the people of God, as we said there. Um, He is in control, but I think he does give genuine chances to repent. I mean, this is uh, 10 chances to repent over six months. Like God is being patient here. And I think if Pharaoh had repented, the story could have gone differently. Um, I think we're meant to feel that. But Pharaoh um, is not... Pharaoh actually grows in his knowledge of God through this story. So he starts out saying, I don't know who this God is. And then he says, oh, I know who this God is. And he's righteous. (laughs) And then he didn't treat him like he's righteous. And then he says, I know who this God is and I don't care. And so Pharaoh is hardening his own heart over time. Um, As he grows in knowledge of God, he has to harden his heart in order to stand against this God. And I I think we're meant to sort of feel that. It's also worth noting that the word translated hardened actually often means strengthened. Um, So arguably, he is being strengthened in his normal disposition. (laughs) So he has a leaning a particular way, and he is strengthening himself like like when clay goes hard over time um he is being strengthened in his own uh aggression against god only in the later plagues and by that point even pharaoh's own advisors have said pharaoh you've lost the plot here (laughs) only at that point does god seem to actively harden his heart which seems to be a way of god saying okay like i've given you so much time and I can see this is going in one direction so I am going to bend evil in on itself to accomplish my purposes so even though God knew it before I think we're meant to feel that Pharaoh had genuine autonomy um, but that God eventually said well I am not going to allow your evil to wreck this indefinitely I'm going to somehow use your evil to undermine you you see what I mean there's still tension there but I, I, I feel like that's the trajectory sorry do you have a yeah, I was just thinking about how like, I feel like it is uncomfortable for us to read because yeah. we're not God, so we yeah. don't know how things happen in the future. So from a human point of view, mm. 
if we're, if, if for example, a human was, was God in this situation, and mm. um, hardening Pharaoh's heart, then it's almost like they're not giving Pharaoh a chance. Yeah. Whereas God knows mm. what's going to happen, and I think that's the kind of thing that we struggle to read mm. or to com- completely comprehend, mm. because mm. actually... God is compassionate and as you say, mm. patient. Mm. Mm. But we often read our own kind of human perspective yeah. on it and think, oh, but he's hardening his heart, therefore he doesn't yeah. have a chance. Yeah, actually, yeah, yeah. yeah, God completely knows how things are going to yeah. turn out and yet he still gives him those chances. Yeah, yeah. He still gives him lots of options. Yeah, definitely, yeah. I just think it must be, it, it shows how like, yeah. 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 Yeah our own hearts. And I think this is meant to make us think, oh gosh, like if I, again, if, if, if Pharaoh saw all these signs, like how could you harden your heart? How do I harden my heart? <laughs> and what does the psalm say? Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Like recognising that Israel has a tendency to do the very same thing. Yeah, yeah. Okay, there, I mean, we've covered a lot of ground very quickly there, um, but we also have a lot more to go. Um, so why don't we Take a quick pause there, and then let's grab some coffee. Would 10 minutes be okay? Is that? So we'll come back at 20 past, and then we will look at how God resolves this. Um, yeah, 10 minutes, back at 20 past. Great, we've covered a lot of ground quite quickly there. Um, I hope that the story is familiar enough with you. Uh, I imagine this part of the story is like the most familiar sort of bit of it. So I'm, I hope that we know enough that you've been able to fill in the gaps. I'm aware I've left many, many gaps as we race through that. Um, but there are the cycles of the three, uh, yeah, three cycles of... There were the, yeah, so there are three cycles, each of which contained three plagues growing in intensity in which God was demonstrating his power to Pharaoh, giving him chances to repent and to let his firstborn son go. Pharaoh's heart is progressively hardened at the same time as he grows in his knowledge of God. So he becomes increasingly convinced of God and his power. And yet at the same time, he becomes increasingly hardened against him. And then we come to the 10th, which is the death of the firstborn and the events of the Passover. And we're on the next page now, which hopefully has a picture of a lamb on it. So there you go. (laughs) And this really is the culmination of it. And even though the whole of these few chapters, uh, each one of these plagues was somehow contributing to the freedom of Israel, God's firstborn son, actually this is the moment that really achieved it. And I forget who said it, but um, as someone pointed out, when later generations celebrated the Passover, they didn't do so by playing with frogs. (laughs) They did so by eating a lamb. Because even though all the other things were significant, it was the lamb that was the, 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 the key symbol that summed up the whole of God's rescue of his people. 
And this is what is known as the Passover. And the Hebrew word is Pasach, which um, I don't know what comes to mind for you when you think of Passover. Um, it's, it's a slightly peculiar word, but actually Pasach often means to cover or to protect. And so it's, yes, it is the moment where the angel of death passes over and obviously executes judgment. But actually, I think we're meant to really, we're meant to be reminded of God's covering of his people and his protecting of his people. That's the primary um, kind of focus here for you. And it was such a, sig- <coughs> sorry, excuse me, such a significant event that actually all of time, sort of was shaped around this in a weird kind of way. So Exodus 12, 2, um, this month is to be for you the first month, the first month of your year. Um, it was so significant that it's like time restarted almost um, from this moment of the Pesach, the Passover. It's a moment of new life <coughs> and new beginning. And there's loads that we could unpack by looking through this chapter um, We don't have time to go through it in depth, but let me just draw out three and then introduce a fourth uh, category of thinking that may help us um, as we approach this. So chapter 12, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month shall be for you the beginning of months. It should be the first month of the year for you. And so they give these instructions. Verse six, actually verse five, they're to select a lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from a sheep or from the goats, and you should keep it until the 14th day of the month when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. So there's this sacrifice that takes place. The first thing to notice about this lamb is it is sacrificial. There was death that had to occur with this lamb. Essentially, every house in Egypt, one way or another, was filled with death on this night. There was bloodshed in every house, whether the blood of a lamb or the blood of a firstborn son. There was sacrifice in every place. And the fact that there was blood shed in every house tells us, I think, that the lamb is somehow a substitute for the firstborn son, a substitutionary sacrifice. And if that makes you think, hang on, have I heard that somewhere before? You're meant to think that. Obviously, they wouldn't have understood this at the time, but there was a substitutionary sacrifice in every Israelite house, or Hebrew house, rather. Second thing is to think about the sprinkling. So look at chapter 12, uh, again, verse 7. The lambs are killed at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. We'll come back to the eating in a moment. Actually, skip ahead, verse 22 as well. Um, So 21, so Moses recaps the stuff. He calls the elders of Israel, says, go and select lambs for yourself according to your clans. Kill the Passover lamb, so the sacrifice, and then take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that's in the basin and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until the morning. It wasn't just that there was a sacrifice that took place, job done. Something had to happen then with the blood of the sacrifice, which is that it had to be taken with a hyssop, um, this, this, this plant, this branch, and then put over the lintel of the door. In Hebrew thought, the door represents the whole house because it is the way into the house, and the house represents the household. So by putting it over the door and then saying, don't go out of the door, you're saying everything within the, uh, the sphere that this door governs and every one within it is covered by this 
blood. So the blood is somehow um, significant for the whole house and everyone who dwells there. And in later texts in Leviticus and Numbers and the Psalms, in fact, hyssop is used in rituals for purification. So there seems to be some kind of hint here um, that God is through this blood, not only protecting, covering Pesach, uh, but also somehow purifying his people. You with me? So there's a sacrifice on behalf of every son. There's bloodshed in every house. And then in many of the houses, the blood is put over the house in order to protect and purify and guard everyone within the house. Thirdly, though, there is supper. (laughs) Uh, verse 8. <clears throat> they shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire, with unleavened bread and bitter herbs they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. They didn't just have to sacrifice. They didn't just have to put the blood. They also had to eat the lamb. Interesting. Because it's not just the act of killing. It's actually something about taking it into you as well that is significant. Not just killing, not just covering, but actually somehow receiving it into you. And everyone had to partake in the eating. And think about this. If, if the lamb was a substitute for the firstborn son... Why wasn't it only the firstborn son that had to eat the lamb? I mean, for one, that would be pretty mean to this kid. You're like, eat the whole thing or you'll die. Like, like that would be a huge problem. This firstborn son, like, please. <laughs> that horrible moment in Matilda where Bruce has to eat the whole cake. It'd be pretty great. But, but think about it seriously, though. If, if the lamb is the substitute for just the firstborn son, why does everyone in the house have to eat it? Not just the firstborn son. Because everybody's protected by it. Everyone's protected. Everyone's purified. Everyone's purified. It must be an individual response. Everyone has to say, but why, but if the threat is only on the firstborn sons here, what, why do I have to do that? There, that's it, absolutely. So this is not actually about protecting the firstborn son, literally in every house. It's about protecting the firstborn son, which includes men and women, whoever they're born. So actually everyone in this moment is identifying with the firstborn son because they are God's firstborn son. Be they male, female, oldest, middle sibling, wherever they sit within the scale. So, and everyone has to participate. Everyone has to somehow take this thing into themselves. They're not simply covered by the ritual of the sacrifice or by the involvement of their family. <laughs> you know, my family has done this, therefore I'm covered. Or I just live within the house, therefore I'm covered. There actually has to be a personal partaking of it for themselves, which I find fascinating. Each of us needs to take and eat. And the treatment of the lamb, and if you look through their uh, various verses, it has to be treated in a particular way, um, bones not broken uh it needs to be yeah whatever is left over needs to be burnt um people need to be circumcised in order to eat it uh, which demonstrates something of the holiness of this ritual yeah so bringing all of that together how does this affect us today well in the new testament second well 1 corinthians 5 and of course there are various points I could turn to as well but 1 Corinthians 5 very explicitly says this 
Yeah, sorry, I'm in the wrong chapter. That's why I couldn't find it. <laughs> Your boasting is not good. This is verse six, actually. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven, which is something they had to do, right, at the Passover. They had to get rid of leaven, that you may be a new lump. <laughs> you thought of yourself as a new lump. What? <laughs> there you go. You don't get that often when you talk about your identity in Christ. You're a new lump. But there you go. That's it. That's it. As you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. So very explicitly in the New Testament, they understood that Christ is somehow our Passover lamb. He achieves for us what was achieved here. So thinking about those things, the sacrifice, the sprinkling, the supper, all those things I've just drawn out, and there's much more we could have done. In what sense is Christ our Passover lamb? Ideas. He covers our sin. Yeah. What particularly covers our sin? His death. His death on the cross and his blood. Yeah. Yeah. Mm, mm, mm. Yeah, I mean, what's really interesting, actually, and this will take us down a rabbit warren, so I won't get to this, because maybe you'll get, you'll get sacrifices in Leviticus. Or I can put that to whoever's doing next month, <laughs> which is thankfully not me. But, um, <laughs> but actually, this, this isn't... Have Israel sinned? Are Israel in this situation because of their sin? No, not really. I mean, they have sinned. But actually, this is a judgment upon Egypt and a rescuing of Israel. And, and I think very often what we do as Christians is we conflate, well, sin therefore requires death, therefore. And we, we make some leaps and there, we can easily read the Passover as if it is a sacrifice for sin. And I don't think that's exactly what's going on here. It's actually a sacrifice for freedom from oppressive powers. Um, and, and then there are other sacrifices like that, and they actually get merged together in the death of Christ, so absolutely. Um, but it's actually, in terms of the Passover lamb, he was a substitute, not necessarily to pay for our sin. He absolutely was that, just to be clear. Um, but it actually to set us free from oppression. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Can you say that <laughs> Quite possibly, if I remember it. Hang on, let me just play it back. Uh, the, so we often, so there are many sacrifices, right? And you'll get to that next month, and it will be a joy. <laughs> um, and they deal with various different things. Many of them involve sin, but actually, their situation here is not primarily about sin. They're being oppressed by sinful people, <laughs> and it's judgment upon them and their gods. Um, but Israel is being rescued from oppression, and so as a part, the Passover lamb is about a substitute to release us from oppression. What Christ does is actually he takes all the sacrifices together in one. So he deals with our sin, he deals with our slavery, he breaks the, uh, the yoke of the powers, he crushes the serpent's head, he does all those things um, in one sacrifice, which is amazing. Uh, but actually when we think of him as being the Passover lamb specifically, it's not, it's not particularly to do with sin, it's to do with freedom by defeating our enemy. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. Great. But yes, his blood cleanses us. And I think there is a cleansing element, actually, because of the hyssop. Yeah, um, absolutely. Other, other ways in which Christ somehow sort of echoes this story or this prece- uh, prophesies about Christ? Um, just on the hyssop mm. thing, um, you've not noted it down, um, John 19, 29 is another mm. worthwhile reference. Yeah. Um, you say, so this is Jesus on the cross. And, 
the jar of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of sour wine yeah. on a hiss of crap. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. And I didn't put it there because I hope someone will pick it up. <laughs> I don't want to give the game away, so well done. Um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. His bones broken. Jesus' bones weren't broken. Yeah, we didn't look at the verse, but the, the lamb had to be treated very holy, had to be pure, perfect, no <laughs> spotless. Um, and his bones were not to be broken. And at the cross, they specifically say, Jesus' bones weren't broken which would have been the norm, right, to speed up the death. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, good, yep. Is there also anything like the communion and the supper? Unpack that, yeah. Um, yeah, we all have to eat communion. Yeah. And, and eat my body, drink my blood, this is the new covenant. For the, yeah, yeah. for the forgiveness of sins, interestingly there, so Jesus merges together, Passover and the other yeah, things together. Absolutely, definitely. It just strikes me as well, we're not just, um, we're not just passive in the story. Yeah, the, yeah. You know, God just doesn't, we just sort of sit there, we're not watching a show sort of thing, we've yeah. got to participate in yes. this, we've got to do something. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. I think in the early chapters of the Gospels, I, um, John the Baptist and Jesus are confronting people who, who say, we're Abraham's children. <laughs> says, no, no, no. The root is, there's an axe at the root. You're going to be cut off. So what he's saying is you need active participation yourself. You can't just say, my forefathers do, and therefore I'm born into this promise. That's true to a degree, but there needs to be active participation and what is it this difference is about your response to Jesus the Messiah the Passover lamb it's like do you respond to Jesus the Passover lamb or do you say my family dealt with all that therefore I'm covered <laughs> uh, yeah active participation is required I mean think of one of the s- titles that was used of Jesus or used to himself he called himself the s- son of God son of man so, like the, Jesus was the firstborn son yeah. yeah and Colossians pulls that out and John 1 pulls that out and, yeah Jesus was the firstborn son yeah come to redeem all of his sons. His blood cleanses us. He leads us out. None of his bones are broken. We had to eat of his body. When did his death take, uh, take place? The Passover. Yeah. <laughs> Literally. And John, it's John, isn't it? It says this, like, as, essentially as the lambs were being slaughtered. Just incredible. What was the meal that Jesus ate where he gave the communion ritual? Passover. <laughs> Don't you think he was sitting there looking at this lamb going... <laughs> Get it, guys! Like, yeah, it's just so rich. It's so beautiful, and time was divided around him. <laughs> just like, like they said, this is the beginning of your new year. Everything resets from this point. BC AD, Jesus divides time. There's a brand new start from him. Yeah, it all points to him. Yeah. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. It's beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. That's incredible. And so the, because of this lamb, everything changes. <laughs> and what happens next? They just get to leave. <laughs> this oppression. And I just want to stop and say for a moment, like, as beautiful as this is, and we think about freedom 
like these people were, they, I mean, they were literally oppressed and we quickly spiritualise it and we're meant to spiritualise it because we are freed from various things. But think about these people who had experienced just literal slavery, literal bondage and oppression uh, because of their race. And sadly, this is not the last time that this has happened, right? <laughs> but we shouldn't rush to spiritualise it. Like God is the God who releases us from all oppression, but he cares about injustice and he releases the people who had just been mistreated uh, on the basis of their national and ethnic identity and have been oppressed and crushed. And God cares and he breaks them out of that and everything about their life has changed. And I can't imagine what that truly was like, but just in the rush to spiritualizing things for us, we must also remember the the actual experience of these people, everything changes from this moment and they get to leave. <laughs> they get to walk out. And I don't think they walked out. Like, I think they jumped and danced and ran out and screamed and celebrated whilst also being surrounded by the tragedy as well. And so it just must have been such a weird mixture of emotions for them. But the freedom, <laughs> everything changes from this point. And they get out. Well, before that, they get to a sea. And they're like, ah. <laughs> and then they turn around, and who's advancing upon them? Just waiting to take them back. And it must be just such a crushing moment. And the Passover lamb has delivered us, and yet we don't feel as delivered as we'd like to be. And it feels like it's all going to take us back, and we're going to be oppressed once more, or worse, put to death on the spot. And so we get to the sea. And this is where we tie in <laughs> the, the sun, the service, and the sea. So turn to the next page. Chapters 14 and 15 look at the crossing of the sea, which, as I said, is a symbol of chaos, of oppression. So they've, released, they've been released from one place of oppression, and now they find themselves confronted by this ultimate symbol of oppression. And just let me show you just something about 1 to 15, chapters 1 to 15. The whole story kind of culminates in this point, and these two chapters, chapters 14 and 15, essentially draw together and complete all of the other themes that has run right through the rest of the book. So let me show you this and then we'll tease out some symbolism. The book, the story essentially be be begins with um, the sons of Israel being delivered through the waters of death. So you get Moses' birth and rescue from the water that's the whole thing, how the whole thing begins. And Moses is called drawn out. And in that scene, you have these reeds uh, where Moses' ark is set. So we're told it's among the reeds. And you think, why mention that? Why not just the side of the room? Why particularly the reeds? Who is there watching? There's Miriam, Moses' sister. And she stands at a distance to watch what would happen to her brother. That's how the story begins. Moses is born, he's obviously, yeah, there, he's rescued from the water himself. Skip ahead to the end of the book, the final box. We get the parting of the sea and the crossing to freedom. And then not only this one son, but the whole son of Israel is rescued through the waters of death. And what do we, what's it called? What's the sea called? The Sea of Reeds. Yeah, the Reed Sea. Who is standing there? Miriam. And what is she doing? She is standing to watch to see the salvation of the Lord. <laughs> it's like how it began with this young girl ends with this older girl. The whole thing is bookended like this. 
We're meant to deliberately see these connections. What we see in chapters 4 and then 11 to 13, which we've just seen, is actually the way in which God rescues his people. He rescues his firstborn sons of Israel. Um, He makes a threat to Pharaoh's firstborn in chapter 4. And then eventually we get the death of the firstborn in Passover. And right in the middle there, you have all the signs and wonders before Pharaoh. The whole thing is like bookended uh, and structured in such a way as to help you to understand that God has been orchestrating this whole process. And with the crossing of the sea itself, it's not simply that they got away from the army, (laughs) which it is. And also that was, as I say, prefigured by the swallowing up of the snakes, the locusts representing an army being swept into the sea. But actually, it ties together themes that come right through the book of Genesis. So think about, if you're imagining the Bible, like we think of the Bible as a whole, imagine you've only got these two books so far. This moment, these two chapters, is tying up three, possibly a fourth loose end that come through in the book of Genesis, the only other book you've read up to this point. So let me just give you four scenes that I think this completes and we'll see why the crossing of the sea was so significant and I put the gaps in there so you can fill them in but let me just spell out the scene we have this sea and then a wind blows across it and the Hebrew word for wind is ruach have you come across that before it also means breath also means spirit when was the last time that you can think of when there was some water and hovering over the top of it was a ruach. The beginning. beginning. Creation. Creation. See, Moses' hand is hovering over the waters. He uses that word, right? And the spirit, the ruach, comes. And what does it do? It divides water from land. This is creation. It's exactly what happens when the spirit moves. What's more, it's not only the division of water and land, but we're told that light and darkness are divided as well. What does that remind you of? Creation. So how is it divided? There's a pillar of fire which gives light to these people. Egypt are left in darkness. (laughs) So we're meant to see in this moment, this is creation. This is a new creation. God is starting again and his spirit is moving in power. He is rescuing his people through the chaos to new life. He's creating a new humanity. You see that? Right, second scene. We're told that the waters which God had held in place, controlled by the wind, then crushed down upon the enemies of God, covering them. Does that remind you of any other story that you might have read if you read the book of Genesis? Noah. (laughs) Yeah. The wind pushes the waters crushes the enemies of God. What was Moses cast out in at the beginning of his life? An ark. This is the culmination of that story. Moses is the new Noah. And the Noah story is not just a story of judgment. It's actually decreation. It's like the created order falling in on itself with the purpose of recreation. So we get these hints of creation itself then the Noah rescue, the decreation and the recreation, because God is starting something brand new from his people, this remnant that emerges from the waters. Thirdly, get this. Do you remember a story that you've read so far when God divided something in two 
and walk through the middle of it in the form of a fire. <laughs> this, this is insane. It's Genesis 15. It's that weird little story that happened to Abraham, which must have been barking mad to him. Like, what is this? This gruesome thing. These walls which represent death and a fire, which is God's own presence, walks through the middle of it. And in that passage, Genesis 15, God says, I am Yahweh who brought you out. In Genesis 15, he says that. We're told that the sun went down to darkness in Genesis 15, the same language picked up in 1450, Exodus 14:15. This is mind-blowing when you think about it. It means two things. It means that when the people were walking through this water, they are being reminded, oh, this is the culmination of what God said to Abraham. This is what he was talking about. He's doing it. Remember, in chapter 15, he prophesied 400 years and then I'm going to rescue you. They're walking through and it's like, oh, we are following. We're literally in Abraham's dream. We're remembering that. But it also means the other way around, that Abraham was being clued up as to what God was going to do and how he was going to do it. That in a way that he wouldn't have been able to see, when Abraham was seeing these things, walls of death separated and a fire going through it, he was getting given a glimpse of something he wouldn't get to experience himself. It's both prophetic and retrospective in a powerful, powerful way. I just think that's, that's pretty mind-blowing, isn't it? And something came to mind when I was reading this. Is it the same thing that when Jesus died, mm. the veil in the... Yeah, curtain was torn in two. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Which I think well, actually plays into the next stuff that we're going to look at in the tabernacle. But yeah, absolutely, this division. Yeah, definitely. When the people went to Egypt, where did they go? Did they go west? Did they go east? Did they go down. down. When do you go down? Into the grave. Into the grave. The first two judgments, this watery place was a place full of blood and frogs, which represent shale. Egypt is a place of graves. If you've ever been to a museum thinking about Egypt, what have you seen? Mummies. Like death rituals, like the thing that they were known for is being a place obsessed with and skilled in death. Joseph's family went down into Egypt. When Moses comes up, what does he do? He brings Joseph's bones back up. <laughs> they go down into the Sea of Reeds. Actually, the word can also mean Sea of Ends, the place of destruction. They go down into it and then back up the other side. It's descent into death and it's raising again to resurrection. Let me just finish, I'll come back to you. And think about what happens with the time as well. This wasn't a quick journey, it was a long journey. It starts with dusk. Then when they're in the sea, it's dead of night, the blackest part. When they get up, out the other side, it's the morning. <laughs> this is symbolism of death and resurrection. And all of this, in a way that people could never have perceived, it points forward to Christ. It points forward to Christ who will do this for us. He will literally go to the grave and come back up. And in the same way that to Abraham, God prophesied, not only this is what I'll do, but actually this is how I'll do it. He actually symbolizes it here through leading his people down into the depths and back up and he's with them the whole way. It's death and resurrection. I just think this is so beautiful, so powerful. And it blows me away. And all of those hints are right there in the text. 
And that in a way that these people could never have figured out, it all points, well, <laughs> pun intended, it's, it's full of Easter eggs. <laughs> it all points to Christ. When you get to Christ, you're like, oh, that was hidden there in plain sight the whole way along. It's absolutely mind-blowing. And I just think that is wonderful. And it's just an amazing reason to worship. <laughs> and so I, that's the end of the first section. And it's joyous. And actually, that's exactly what they do. Miriam sings this song of worship. And so just before we go on to the next section, and there may be a ton of questions about that, I think it's just right that we do that for a moment. We took a moment, and I'm not going to lead you in a song. No one wants that. But why don't we just pray? And why don't we just thank God for his rescue? And I wonder, actually, if just one or two people will pray and you can pray things that have struck you from this or just general thanks to him. I, I don't mind. This is not a moment, by the way, for you to pray out so that I know, oh, they learned something today. Like, that's not... Give thanks for something that God has done in your life. Give thanks for something he has shown you. Give thanks for his death and resurrection. Give thanks for his word. Give thanks for his rescue. Let's just take a moment to pray. People just lead us as and as how you feel. Your unfailing, unwavering purpose and plan mm. for us, for creation, for us individually. Mm. And Lord, I, I just, I'm just, just, I'm amazed at, at, at this and how, how you take each one of us, Lord. Yeah. And when we waver, when we doubt, when we struggle, Lord God, your plan is the same. Mm. You have the same plan. You are unwavering, and you will mm. continue to work out your plan for each one of us, Lord. And gosh, it's so. Mind, but you are so faithful what we are. And Lord, I just thank you. 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 Father God, you're just so good. You're just too good. You just mm. love us too much, Lord. Your mm. love is just... We can't express how much we love you, or how much you love us. Lord, you just love us even in the mess, Lord. In the mess, Lord God. In our mm. thinking, in our... Everywhere we find ourselves in. <coughs> yeah, thank you. Lord, thank you for your love. Mm -hmm. mm. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, God, that you are not just the creator God who, <laughs> who, who brought everything into being, but you are uh, a God who is so deeply concerned about mankind that, that your, your redemption story is mm. just repeated again and mm. again and mm. again. Mm. We see the cessalism of it here and yeah. uh, And it, it's just like a... It's like that tapestry that just sort of weaves of the same colours appearing again and again and again in yes. different timelines and different things in different ways. Yeah. And your creativity is such that it isn't confined to just the physical, mm. but also to the whole span of time. Mm. And mm. how things appear and reappear and reappear. Yes. And it's all around your son Jesus. And it's just mm. 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 And we thank you for your creativity. Mm. The creativity in time as well as in the physical. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Thank you. Yeah.
together, thank you that we can see so much of ourselves in each one of those sto- uh, these stories, but also, yeah. Lord, yeah, thank you that we can delve into <coughs> what these stories meant for these people at this time um, and what you were doing in mm. each of their lives. And mm. um, just reminded of Moses's um, protestations against um, your plan for him mm. saying that he wasn't good enough, that he wasn't the right person, mm. that he wasn't skilled enough. And yeah, Lord, I just um, want to thank you that. Um, even though we all felt like that, and even though we're not um, good enough, we're not worthy, and um, you um, delight in us, and you are, um, mm. you, you made us your children that you love, and that you've welcomed in. Yeah. Um, yeah, Lord, I just thank you that we can step into every day knowing that you have a beautiful, amazing plan, mm. just as you did for um, the imperfect Israelites, and mm. you also do for us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, would someone just give him thanks for being the Passover lamb as well? Thank you that you're faithful to your covenant. <clears throat> Thank you that you give new starts. Thank you that you walked through those walls of death. Thank you that you're still with us. That the same spirit that hovered over the waters of creation, hovered over the waters of the sea of reeds, still hovers over the chaos of our life. Thank you, Lord, that you have made us to be a new humanity, that you have just given us chance after chance. And that this is not just an ancient story that we get to study in some academic sense, but we're in it. Just in that same way that everyone had to eat of the Passover lamb to benefit from it, we we have done that and continue to do that. And if we had bread and wine right now, we would do that. And we would celebrate that. Thank you that you've made us one in you. Everyone in this room today is the firstborn son by association with you. Thank you for your presence here with us. We're so grateful. And may we never move on from this gratitude, even though we're going to get into some technical stuff now. Lord, may just this sense of your presence and your joy and your freedom remain with us, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> Great. Huh. <clears throat> 
Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, really explicitly, um, Paul. Paul essentially says that. So uh, Romans, when it talks about going into the water and back out in Romans six, I think is drawing on the baptism. Uh, the, the, this this sort of Exodus idea. Um, but the, I think it's is it First Corinthians ten, where um, Paul says, "For everyone was baptized into Moses." <laughs> a bizarre thing. How, do, how were they baptized into Moses? They went down into the water, back up with Moses as their leader. <laughs> and therefore, when we think about baptism, it's, it's being identified with the one who leads us into and out of the waters of death. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And, and connecting that once more. And then what we'll do is. I don't know you've got a question. No, no, sorry. I just want to ask you that reference that we made. Could you just repeat the reference? About the baptism into, I think it's First Corinthians ten, is it? Um, I'll look it up in a second. Let me just. Um, I'm pretty sure it's First Corinthians ten. Um, Tom's going to look it up for you. Um, uh, two. Two. Yeah. Sorry. Um, sorry. <laughs> as, if I, as if I need to apologise that I didn't get the verse as well. Uh, I'm pretty. I'm pretty happy with that, to be honest. Um, but also think about this. Think about this. How does Jesus' own life begin? Beat John the Baptist. The wilderness, <laughs> desert all around you, water. He goes into the water. What hovers over him? Spirit. He comes up and God says, this is my... Let's take a break. <laughs> you, can, you can put those dots together. Like, this is beautiful. This is how we're meant to engage with scripture. Um, okay, it's going to get a bit more miserable after this high that we've just come to because that's where the rest of Exodus takes us. But let us take, and we actually have a lot to cover, so do, do you just want, is five minutes too short? If we do five minutes now, we might get another five minutes in a bit. Is that all right? Or do people need a bit more brain space than that? All right, let's go for, let's go for five minutes. And if you do look like you're flagging later, we'll, we'll extend that, but yeah. Okay, um, we have come a long way quite quickly, but we have quite a way to go. <laughs> um, man, don't you wish that the book of Exodus stopped there? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you like the... Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's good. Yeah. Yeah. Don't you wish our lives stopped there as well, though? <laughs> Freedom! And now we'll follow you gloriously. And the fact that the people don't and we don't I think is, is quite interesting. So you get to chapter 14, 15, the people are free, 16 to 18. Oh man, they grumble. <laughs> they grumble and they want to go back to Egypt. And again, again, just to sort of make this point again, we often spiritualize it and we say, um, oh Lord, you've released me from sins. By what I'm, I might mean something quite small, a bit of, oh gluttony or greed, whatever it happens to be, Lord. Oh, why would I ever go back to that sin? Which is, these people want to go back to being oppressed by a slave master. I mean, that, the, the extremity of that is just shocking, shocking. Um, they've been brought, sorry? It's human nature that we want to go back to. Yeah. And, yeah, but think of, I mean, you're, you're brought out as God's firstborn son, and it's like you turn around to your dad and say, I'd rather be, I'd rather be dead. I don't know. 
Yeah. 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 But 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 think of it. Well, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I, and my point is that we all do the same. Yes, yeah, so I'm I'm totally agreeing. But I just want you to get the extremity of it that what they were willing to go back to is so awful. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but I think Yeah. Yeah. And isn't it sometimes the immediacy of whatever we're facing there? Yeah. We don't think about the big picture. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, 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 yeah. No, absolutely. Yes. Um, is it possible to draw that curtain over a bit, actually? Would you mind? I can just um, look a bit blinded. Um, sorry to cast us into darkness, but that's, oh, that's wonderful. Thank you very much. Um, Great. So, I mean, 16 to 18, they grumble. And it doesn't actually stop there either. <laughs> they don't get to 19 and they're sorted. It carries on but, um, for another three books. But, <laughs> um, but then chapter 19, they get to Sinai and they spend a, basically a year there and we'll spend basically an hour there. Um, but let me just back up because in this session, we're, we're going to think a little bit about the character of God. So we'll continue on through the story of Exodus. But I particularly want to think about the character of God. Uh, and so I don't have page numbers on here, but it's, it's the one called When, How and Why Does God Make Himself Known? Um, and I just want to make a quick, uh, just, just step back and kind of show you something up to now to help you to understand where the rest of the book goes. Um, yeah, I don't think I actually shared this earlier when I got you to summarise the book, um, but I did actually write this on one of the earlier chapters. I think, it's, I think it's page three, I put it on there. My summary of the book of Exodus um, is, in the book of Exodus, God reveals himself as Yahweh, the one who rescues his firstborn son from slavery and sea, to worship, worship being the same word as serve there, him, as a kingdom of priests and to be a blessing to the nations. That's my summary of the book of Exodus. And it's on page three of your notes. Um, uh, And what I I find fascinating is that the God of all creation, the God who we know from Genesis 1 speaks everything into being, controls everything, he doesn't just exert his might over all creation. The way he reveals himself is actually to come down to the smallest point and then work his way through it all, from a small point upwards. So the reality is that Yahweh is, I am who I am, like he is the supreme God, that's the absolute reality, but he doesn't reveal that all in one go, he actually, the method of his revelation is to reveal himself first as a tribal deity, that is, he reveals himself to one family, (laughs) Abraham, he gets involved in family matters, which seem incredibly beneath a God who is in charge of everything, like marriage, childbirth, who gets married to whom, um, who has children and when, protecting them. He's battling for the hearts of a single family. That's how he chooses to reveal himself. Only then do we progress to Exodus, and he he reveals himself not only as a tribal deity, but a national deity, where he calls this group to become a nation, and he reveals himself to one nation and gets involved in slightly bigger scale things, national matters of deliverance, governance, law, rituals, and he battles the heart for the hearts not only of one family, but a whole nation, in order that they will be a light to all the nations, so that he can reveal himself finally as the, the fullness of who he is. He's a cosmic deity. He wants his nature and name to be revealed to all creation, where he shows himself to be involved in cosmic matters of redemption, judging evil, the renewal of all things, dethroning all gods, battling for the heart of humanity itself. But he starts small and he works his way through in the same way that he does with the incarnation, where Jesus is born into a single family 
but is actually shown to be the representative of Israel for, to be a light to all the Gentiles and ultimately is revealed to be the one who is enthroned in heaven and will come and unite all things in himself. And Richard Borkham, who's a brilliant scholar, uh, actually I've recommended one of his books. On the, on the back page there are six recommendations. I could have recommended way more, but these are six. And I recommended one called Who is God, which is fantastic, um, but it's not actually in this book that he says this. <laughs> um, but he says, Biblical mission embodies a kind of movement from the particular to the universal. And what he's saying is this is the way that God always works. He chooses one person, but not just to stop with one person. It's to then win over his family, his wider sphere of influence, and then from them to reach all people. And I think that's actually, he argues, in a book on mission. That's the way that we should work as well. Um, So with that in mind, let's think about how, when, and why God makes himself known. And we'll just go through this super quickly because it's going back over the chapters we've already looked at. Um, But Exodus 1-7, as we saw earlier, um, it reminds us of creation and Abraham. So they are being fruitful, they're multiplying, they're growing. Um, God is still furthering the creation mandate and the Abrahamic covenant, which was not simply that they would be blessed, but they would be blessed in order to bless others. Yeah, yeah. So the purpose is that his name will be known. And I should say, actually, these four categories came from a book called huh it's gray it's got a gray cover good luck finding it <laughs> what's it called oh my word what is it called it is by w ross blackburn and it is called the god who makes himself known w ross blackburn i didn't put it on the recommendations i would recommend it but i tried to limit myself to six but yeah can i ask you a question please yeah you referenced in your second Box here, Exodus 1, 23 to 25. There's no... Ah, <laughs> so yes, you're right. In fact, I've, I've scribbled it on my notes. Um, yes, I sent a typo before I sent the handouts over, so sorry about that. It's actually Exodus 2, um, 23 to 25. Um, I've made a note to correct that for next year. Um, so we start off, the purpose is that the name will be known, but then we discover that the name of God is unknown. <laughs> so Exodus 1, 8, um, there arose a pharaoh who didn't know about Joseph. I therefore didn't know about the story of Joseph. Um, But also, yes, Exodus 2, uh, 23 to 25. Um, Would someone read those verses for me quickly while I find them? Exodus 2, 23 to 25. Yeah, I can. Exodus 3. Sorry, 2, 23 to 25. During that long period, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out, and their cries of help because of their slavery went up to God. Okay, so the purpose is that the name of God will be known. Pharaoh doesn't know. Who are the people crying out to in this verse? Are they? It doesn't actually say that, does it? It says they cried out. It doesn't say where they direct their cries, but God heard. Yeah. And, and I think that is significant because in Genesis chapter 4, um, we're told that with the Seth, you've got the Cain and Abel story, and then you've got Seth, and it says, in those days, really similar language to here, people began to call on the name of the Lord. Right? So that's a, a, a turning point in the story. Here, people call, but we're not told they call on the name of the Lord. It's just like cry out. So it even feels like the people have forgotten as well. But then move on, chapter 13 to 14, essentially, that section there, including um, the, the revelation of the burning bush and then through the plagues, um, God is making his 
name known. Um, so 3.13 to 15. Uh, Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? So like the people maybe don't even know the name of their God, or the God of their forefathers. Or if if they do, maybe they're just saying to Moses, do, do you know? Like, are we talking about the same person here? Um, what is his name? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. So God makes his revelation to Moses, and there seems to be this assumption that, that maybe the people didn't know who this God was, and so God gives him his name. Um, why do you need to know a God's name? Because there are so many other gods. Yeah, so you live in Egypt, where, I mean, you saw it on one of the pages earlier, like this whole list of gods, and so you need to know, who are we sacrificing to today? Who, who do I need to pray for for that particular thing? Because I don't want to pray to the wrong one, because what if that's out of his jurisdiction? Like, you live in a world where names matter. And actually, there is an ancient myth, um, uh, sorry, an ancient Egyptian story, I've got it written somewhere, the legend of Isis and Ray, where um, two gods, one of them is trying to get the upper hand on the other one, but in order to do so, he needs to know his true name. And they've kept this name hidden. And the point is that often gods would use pseudonyms so you couldn't trick them by finding out their true hidden secret name. <laughs> like This was a world in which names of gods mattered for people's function, but also the gods were wary about giving out their names in case they got tricked by other gods, which is like mind-blowing. But in that context, God says, it's my name. <laughs> and he shares it um, so that people know who it is that they are talking to. And the name itself is complicated. Some people translate it, I am who I am, or I will be who I will be. Uh, if you want to read more on that, Borkham's book, which I recommend at the back, which is like really short, but it's four or five sort of key revelations about God. It's absolutely brilliant. It's one of those books that like, you read a sentence, you have to read it again in a good way because everything is just so, so profound. It's really well worth looking at it. But he unpacks more about this name uh, there, so it's worth checking out. Um, I don't know how to define it. I am who I am. I will be who I'll be. I think part of the fact that we can't define it is part of the point <laughs> because God cannot be defined. He cannot be controlled. He is who he is and he will be who will, he will be and no one else can define him. He is self-sufficient like the burning bush itself which burns but doesn't run out of stuff to burn. <laughs> uh, God will never be exhausted and he will reveal himself and the way he reveals himself is actually through his coming actions which is, I'm revealing myself as Yahweh, who will rescue my people. And that divine name, actually, in your Bibles, chances are, Lord, there is spelt with capitals. Yeah? And um, you may know this already, but when that is the case, it's referring to the divine name, Yahweh. Um, Y-H-W-H. Um, when it's Lord, lowercase, capital L, uh, usually it's using the Hebrew word Adonai. Um, but this is their way of saying this is the divine name. And it appears just under, I think it's 6,800 times or something in the Old Testament. So it's a really significant name. And actually, Borkham is brilliant. He shows how it then gets adapted into the New Testament. Well worth checking out. But anyway, um, Exodus 5.2. Pharaoh said, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord. And moreover, I will not let Israel go. Pharaoh doesn't know. Chapter 6, verse 3. Um, God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But my name, 
the Lord there, Yahweh, I did not make myself known to them. So God had revealed something of his character or his nature or his name to people in Genesis, but hadn't revealed himself as Yahweh. Only problem is, if you read Genesis, you will come across the word Yahweh. So, <laughs> so some people say, well, maybe they didn't know him as Yahweh, but whoever wrote it, like wrote the name Yahweh back in. Um, I think what's more likely is that people did know that his name was Yahweh. They just didn't know the full scale of what that meant. Um, and so God is not only revealing his name to his people, but he's revealing his nature um, as tied up with his name. Um, he is going to reveal something about him. And particular thing that he's going to reveal about him is that he is the God who delivers his people. There you go. <laughs> um, so it's not just, you know my name, but you know what I'm about as well. And he is the God who releases people from slavery. Uh, so he's making his name known. Uh, Exodus 9, 16. Um, For this purpose I have raised you, Pharaoh, up to show my power so that my name may be proclaimed in the, in the earth. So God's goal, even through Pharaoh, is that his name will be proclaimed not just in Egypt, but actually in the whole of the earth. This is God's plan. And then Exodus 15, verses 2 to 3, they've got through to the other side of the sea. Miriam sings, the Lord is my strength and my song, Yahweh there. Um, he has brought, become my salvation. This is my God and I will praise him, my father's God, and I will exalt him. Yahweh is a man of war. Yahweh is his name. So chapters 1 to 15, we get on this journey from God saying, I'm still about filling the earth with my name and my glory. Pharaoh doesn't know who I am. My people don't know who I am. They've forgotten. I'm going to reveal myself to one of my people so that my people and this other nation will know. Pharaoh will be raised up so that everyone will know. And by the end of 15, at least most of them know. <laughs> um, and it's going to continue between, beyond that. So the point is that God is revealing his character through this book so that people know who he is. As Borkham says, biblical mission moves from the particular to the universal. And God is revealing not only his name, but what his name represents. So with all of that, let us turn to chapter 19 and the revelation at Sinai. We're going to move through this quite quickly because the, <laughs> the joyful stuff's at the end, and I don't want us to end the day on the miserable stuff. So we're going to get, everything is important, and I want to make sure that we get through all of it to its culmination. But Sinai is really significant, and actually there's a brilliant book which I have recommended on the last page by Dr. Carmen Joy Imes called Bearing God's Name, and uh, it's, it's brilliant on all of this, um, and quite accessible as well. I really recommend it. Um, but she makes the point that actually in Western storytelling, we often keep the culmination of the story to the end. So you give clues, 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 and then it's the final chapter reveals everything. In ancient and Eastern storytelling, often they use a different technique where the most important bit is in the middle, not at the end. And everything sort of builds up to and then out from this central thing. And so I've given you a picture here of Leonardo da Vinci's picture of um, the Last Supper. And you see everything, like the lines, everything points to this central figure who is Jesus. And that's how we are used to seeing art. Uh, it frames the central thing, but we're not often used to seeing stories that way, but that's the way that ancient stories often used. They'll have this mirror imaging or what's called a ring structure, where it would just be rings that build into the center point and then back out from the center point. And that's what we see not only with Exodus, actually, but the whole of the Torah. The first five books, Sinai runs from Exodus 19 to Numbers 10. It's the dead center of the whole of the Torah, the five books of Moses. 
And this covers one whole year, which is there in this, this entire period. And actually, if you look either side of the story um, in Exodus and then, well, from Exodus 19 right through Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, you see that basically it's arranged in this mirror image. So there are six representative campsites on each side. So they keep saying, and they set out from X and they move to this. Six times before Sinai, six times after Sinai. Actually, if you read Numbers 33, you find out they stopped and camped in 42 spaces, but there are only 12 that are told to us. 12. Interesting number. Why 12? <laughs> it's full of symbolism, the 12 tribes of Israel, and it's divided. Six here, six there. It's just a structural way of sort of showing the significance of Sinai. Seven deserts either side, um, manna and quail and water are provided either side, Exodus and Numbers 11. Uh, an angel protects the Hebrews from a foreign king on both sides. There's a battle against the Amalekites on both sides of Sinai. Advice from a Midianite family member both sides of Sinai. Moses delegates leadership responsibilities, saying, I'm unable to do this alone in Exodus 18 and Numbers, 9, uh, numbers 11. And before crossing over... <laughs> both in Exodus 14, crossing over the Sea of Reeds, and then in Numbers 14, before crossing over into the Promised Land, what do they do? They say, oh, I wish we hadn't left Egypt. <laughs> and so in both cases, you get this similar message, both sides of Sinai, which suggests to us that though Sinai is the central thing, they don't learn the lessons. <laughs> and I think this is what we're actually meant to feel from the Torah. The central point of it is it comes to this mountain, which is the high point, both symbolically and literally, <laughs> but they don't learn their lessons that they're taught over a year at Sinai. Does that make sense? Great. Um, can anyone remember another name for Sinai? Horeb. Yeah. Okay. So they come back to this mountain that Moses has been at before. Yeah. And what do they do? They worship God there. And that's the sign. God said, you're going to do it and then you'll know, um, which is an amazing moment. And so they get to Sinai and they spend a year there. Next page. And what they are given is, in fact, what are they given at Sinai? Their commandments, yeah. Yeah. Commandments, law, those are the words that often kind of come to our mind. Actually, just that th they are given that. But when we hear the words commandments and law, we often have a heavy feeling about them. I would say it's better to think of this as the giving of the covenant, which is being invited into a relationship and partnership, and the law and the commandments are the terms of the covenant. But the primary thing is the relationship. A commitment between two parties, the laws are the terms of that. And actually the word Torah, uh, what does the word Torah mean? Instruction, yeah. So we often hear law, Torah and we think law, it includes laws, but it actually is instruction. So when we read the Psalms, I delight in the law of God. Most of us think, I don't. <laughs> but if you think of instruction of God, which includes laws, like that, I think that just helps us to frame it a little bit um, differently. And what we see here in the giving of the covenant, um, basically from chapter 19 to chapter 40, is it falls into two halves, largely positive, largely negative, which actually reflects the two halves of the book as a whole. <laughs> um, so we're given the covenant, Chapters 19 to 24, Moses climbs Sinai, Ten Commandments, Book of the Covenant, and the covenant is sealed. They enter into relationship. Then, a whole bunch of chapters about how to build a tent, as Tom so eloquently put it earlier, the tabernacle instructions. And then something happens, and then some, we, go back to the, we cycle back to the covenant. And chapters 31 to 34, Moses is given the tablets, they breach the covenant, Moses intercedes, the covenant is renewed, and then 
they build the tabernacle and they do all the stuff they were meant to do before. And so you get these two cycles, one positive, one negative. So you end the book on a negative note in that sense. But it's worth thinking about what is going on here. Um, are they just being given a list of rules and then it's like over to you? <laughs> I don't think that's what's happening here. Rather, God is inviting this rescued people into a relationship. And the order of that is really important. God doesn't say to them, here's a bunch of laws. If you keep this law, then I will save you. They have already been saved by this point. They've already got out of Egypt. They've been rescued. Their enemies defeated. Then they get the laws. And it's really easy for us Christians to think, oh, law is a really negative thing. <laughs> um, and, and actually, well, Christians think this as well, but a lot of people who have ideas about God think that what God wants is keep these laws and you will be saved. That's not the right way to think about it. It's you have been saved, therefore this is the way to live. Right? And that makes all the world of difference when we think about grace and law. There's way more grace in the Old Testament than we think. <laughs> um, and it's easy just to make unhelpful dichotomies. Old Testament's all about law, New Testament's all about grace. No, no, no. <laughs> it's grace that precedes the law. And the law is the outworking of the covenant terms, which is you've been welcomed into this relationship by grace. And there are, I think, three purposes to what God has done and what he is about to give them in terms of the covenant. Um, so Exodus 19, 4 to 6, would someone read that? It's in your notes. You yourselves have seen us <laughs> head into Egypt and how I carried you on the eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Brilliant. Three things just want to pull out from there. So already God has rescued his people, and now he gives them the covenant terms. So I've already said that, so three more. <laughs> uh, you'll be my treasured possession. The Hebrew word there is segula, which means, um, well, treasured possession. <laughs> uh, but I, I think it occurs six times, no, eight times in scripture. Twice, well, six times it refers to Israel. Twice it refers to the king's private treasury. Um, it's like the things that the king has stored up for himself. You know when you save something for a particular purpose? Like, that's, that's Israel. Like, it's God's own personal treasury that he has for a particular purpose. And he says, although the whole earth is mine, like, I own everything. There's something about you. I've ring-fenced you for a particular reason. You will be mine. Uh, you will be for me a kingdom of priests. Like, we're used to that phrase. The Bible's full of priests, full of kings, full of kingdoms. How many priests had Israel had up to this point? One-ish? <laughs> like it wasn't really a thing, was it? The priesthood really wasn't a structured thing at this point. You got, kind of got Melchizedek and whatever you do with him. Like there was a, an idea of mediation between humanity and God, but the priesthood wasn't a structured thing. How many kings had they had until this point? Kingdom hadn't been established at this point. And arguably God didn't want a kingdom anyway, like a king, at least a human king. So, but this idea of kingdom of priests, it both prophesies what is going to happen, how they're going to develop. But I think it also takes us back to Adam and Eve, who, as I can't remember who said it earlier, about image bearing um, means that we do something. We care for creation. We have roles as kings and priests. Arguably, that's a great way of saying what being an image bearer is. We rule, subdue over creation, um, but we also do so as a mediator between God and humanity so that everyone will come into the knowledge of who he is. So he's saying, basically, I'm calling you back to your creation mandate, but on a bigger scale, on a national scale now. Yeah. What's the meaning of a priest? What is the meaning of a priest? Good question. I, I think, well, here I would say 
it's primarily a mediator between humanity and God. Yeah. And then there are a whole load of things tied up with how that works. <laughs> um, but I, I think that's, that's the primary thing. Yeah. You will be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Not just a nation, a holy nation. So a nation set aside for a particular purpose, which is bringing blessing to the nations. So Christopher Wright, in his massive book, The Mission of God, massive but brilliant, he says um, that Israel has a role that matches their status. So their status is to be a special treasure possession. Their role that outworks from the status is to be a priestly and holy community in the midst of the nations. And that combination of status and role is important. And I think that goes back to image bearing. There is a status that we get that is different from everything else, but that status results in a role. Um, so we get glory, dignity, and purpose, being kings and priests. Yeah. And this is, I think, what we've already seen in Abraham. They were blessed in order to be a blessing. So actually, when we think about this as the giving of the covenant, arguably, this is not the giving of a covenant as in they enter a relationship here now. Rather, it's the deepening of the covenant that's already made with Abraham. So they were already promised this relationship, and now that is deepened further. You can consider it a different covenant, but it sort of doesn't matter really. But the point is there's continuation. It's a deepening of this relationship with the continued purpose of being a blessing to the nations. Now, of course, the main thing that we think about is the rules being a part of this covenant and the terms of the covenant. But again, um, there are definite rules, undeniably, but it's worth thinking about what the context of the rules is, are and what, what, what's the purpose of them. So again, Carmen Joy Iams puts this really helpfully. She says that we should think of the rules as being like um, sort of house rules or traditions that you have within your house, chores that you have within your house. So um, one of the things I'm trying to get my daughter to at the moment, so she's five and um, she just comes in uh, and she kicks off her shoes and leaves them at the bottom of the stairs and she dumps her coat on the floor and she just runs off. <laughs> and, so, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, well, maybe I'm fighting a losing battle. Who knows? It's deeply annoying. I come down the stairs and like trip over these things. So what I'm trying to do is say, in our house, we have a place where we put the shoes, just put them there, and we have a place where you hang the coat. Just do that. <laughs> and I'm trying to teach her this thing, and maybe I'll never win at that. But the point is, it's a rule that we have in our house, and... I didn't have my child so there'd be someone to arrange my shoes and my coat. <laughs> like, I had to, I mean, it would be way easier if I hadn't. But like, it's the primacy of relationship. Like, I wanted a family, and so that's the thing. And love is the first thing. But in order to make family work, you need certain rules, and it comes that way around. Equally, I can't go and knock on my next-door neighbor's door and uh, get her five-year-old daughter and say, hey, come on over a sec, move those shoes <laughs> that aren't yours into the place where we keep them in our house. Like, that's... That, that, that's not how house rules work. It's about living in this house. And in a similar sort of way, these rules are given for the household of God. It's not that you're meant to go to the other nations and go, you must live by this household code. It's actually a household code for the people who are already in relationship. See what I mean? It's for Israel. And it's meant to echo beyond Israel, but it's for them primarily. And so in Deuteronomy 4, God says, see, I've taught you the decrees and laws, etc. Observe them carefully, for this will show your wisdom and understanding to the nations who will hear about all these decrees and say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. The idea is that other nations should look at the way that Israel works as their family unit and go, oh, I'd love to be part of a family like that. I wonder if we could do those things in our family. And of course, they're available to them because they're wisdom for how to live. It's a little example. I... Um, uh, I was, well, I was on a call with some dads yesterday and we were just talking and we just 
sort of talk to, to share life and try and help each other. Um, and I was like, how do you deal with this? And so one of my friends was like, oh, this is what we do in our family. Brilliant. That's amazing. I've seen that wisdom work for you. Like, I'm going to take that. Or we went for dinner with some friends the other day. Um, first time we met them, actually, and, and spent a lot of time with them. And they got their daughter to take this jar out as we sat down for dinner. And they took out of the jar these names. And they were all these bits of paper. We took out the name. And it was Simon and Carol and three kids. I don't know Simon and Carol and the three kids. But they took them out and they said, well, what we do is every day we pray for someone from this part. Oh, that's great. It would have made no sense to make me do that because I didn't know Simon and the Carol and the three kids. I can pray for them, but I don't know the specifics. But just seeing and being part of this ritual, I was like, oh, I'd love that in my family. So we started doing that in our family now. And we've just created the kind of tradition that because we saw the wisdom of it, how it instilled something good, and we say we want that. And that's what the law is meant to do. So the idea is that Israel, if they live according to God's, the terms of this relationship that God has already put them into as a result of his grace, they should be a light to the nations and others should go, I want that. And actually, I want to know the God that empowers people to live that way. Isn't that a way more positive way of thinking about the law than we often tend to think of? Yeah. I don't know whether you spotted it and intended it, but mm. those three things that you mentioned about the training, possession, kingdom, and priesthood, and ordination, is exactly mirrored in one piece. Mm. Chosen people, yeah. the royal priesthood, and ordination. Absolutely, yeah, definitely. And he says that to people who may not have all been Jewish. <laughs> so, so non-Jewish people get to be part of this plan that God has for his people by identification with the Messiah who is the Passover lamb. Yeah, absolutely, definitely. Yeah. Okay, so we get this law, and we're not going to go through all of the law, um, but uh, someone, can someone read chapter 19, verse 8, and read it, as you think the people would have said it. Then all the people answered together and said, and said, all that the Lord has spoken we will do. So Moses brought back the words of the people in the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I come to you in the thick cloud, that the people may hear when I speak with you, and believe you forever. So Moses told the words of the people to the Lord. Fantastic. So they say, we're going to do it all. <laughs> and I don't think it's like, okay, we'll do it. I think, like, yes, we will do it. And everything we know about them <laughs> tells us that no, they won't. Because <laughs> we've seen that in the last few chapters. But I think there is this genuine excitement of the people. Yeah, the, well, the intention is good. And I think they realize this is, a, this is, yeah, brilliant. We will do this. There's an excitement, even if we know it's short-lived. And so what happens is that God's presence comes in power. Yeah. Hold that thought. Chapter 20, we're then given the Ten Commandments. Next page. And there's so much that we could look at uh, in this. But these are the basic terms of the covenant. So God has said, I've rescued you because I have this plan for you, which is beautiful. Do you want in? Yes, we want in. Okay, here are the basic terms of how this is going to work out. It's just ten, just ten. And it's simple. Well, I say it's simple. It's actually not simple at all. Um, and there's loads of confusion over how these work out, um, partly because they're listed two different ways with slight differences, and partly because they don't go, here's number one, here's number two, here's number three. So different traditions number them in different ways. So you'll see on the table there, on the left, is the Protestant ordering, and the Catholic ordering is uh, on the right. And so it's slightly different. Um, and again, Carmen Joy Imes' book on this is brilliant in teasing out why the differences are. And she puts forward a proposal which is just too, 
too complicated for me to say now, but I, I think she's right. Um, but totally recommend that. But essentially, there are 10 commandments, however you number them, which are not exhaustive. Um, they're less, less like very specific, detailed, led, I can't say this word, legislature, laws. <laughs> Why don't I just use that? Um, like, it's not like really detailed. It's sort of general wisdom for life. And they raise all kinds of questions. But notice, they're not primarily about private morality. They're about how you interact with others, right? Because the idea is that the way you treat others should be a witness to them about the wisdom and glory of God. And so they start off, I am the Lord your God that brought you out of Egypt, out of the Lord, land of slavery. You should have no other gods before me. Which in a nation that worships multiple gods, um, he's saying there are loads on offer. <laughs> I just don't take any of those because I'm, I'm the only one who is able to rescue you. And actually, as we've seen already, God has systematically defeated every one of the Egyptian gods. It would be ridiculous to take them. Um, and make no idols or images for yourself and bow down and worship to them. Um, I don't know if you looked at this in Genesis, but the word image is so often used for idols in scripture. So we are the idols of God. It feels odd saying that. We're the images of God. So God says, don't make any images for yourself. Why? Because we're the image. <laughs> so don't make um, what God has made us to be. And then it says, you shall not take the name of the Lord in vain, which at least for me, like growing up, what I thought that was is, um, is blaspheming, like saying a name of God in a negative way. And it includes that. But I think it's actually broader than that. Um, so Carmen Imes again says that to take the name of the Lord in vain probably actually means to bear the name of the Lord in vain. And she says that when the priests uh, wore their robes, which were all prescribed, they had the name of God on them and they bore, and it's the same word, they bore it on them because they were a representative of that God as the priest. So to bear the name of God in vain means to fail to live out being the image bearer you were created to be. It's actually broader than just saying, oh, whatever. <laughs> it's, it's all of life, isn't it? Yeah. You don't need to buy a book now. but <laughs> No, really do. It's fantastic. But I, I think she's spot on. So that's way broader, isn't it? The whole of your life is meant to be in service to God. It's not just don't say this particular word, although, of course, it includes that. It's actually don't fail to live up to the image-bearing role that you were created to do. And so it actually begins, like, however you order these first it sort of says, don't worship a representation of God because you are the representation of God. And don't fail to be the representation of God for which he has created you to be as a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Get that? Yeah. Then you get Sabbath, um, which is the first of two positive commands. And, I mean, we talked about Sabbath being significant. Sorry, I've forgotten your Is it Amy? Joanna. 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 Is there an Amy somewhere? I've met her. Yeah, there you go. Um, exactly. And just framing the room, like... <laughs> Like that bookended thing, it's really confusing. Um, great, Joanna. Uh, like you said, uh, Sabbath was a key thing that you took from Genesis. And what's really interesting is here, the, the call to Sabbath goes back to Genesis, right? Because this is how God operated. In later texts, when it talks about the reason for practicing Sabbath, sometimes it says, because God released you from slavery. And so you practice Sabbath as a way of saying, I experienced freedom from slavery as I literally did in Egypt. So in later texts, they talk about the reason for Sabbath as being to do with celebrating the Exodus. Here, they talk about the reason for it being to celebrate the created order, right? So it's all taking you back to Eden, created as image bearers, live up to being the image bearers. That includes Sabbath, treating this day holy, honouring your father and mother. I was thinking, I, 
not quite figured this out, so I might be entirely wrong, but I, I was thinking the other day, I, I wonder, I do sort of wonder if the whole thing is tying back to Eden, and there is a sort of chronology here, um, I don't know, maybe I'm stretching, stretching too far, but why? Going from Sabbath to honouring your father and mother is a little bit strange, except that what happened after the seventh day was the fall, the answer to which is a mother would have children who would become the answer to the problem of the fall. I wonder if there's something connecting back to lineage there. Um, I don't know. And then what happens next? Chapter four is murder. So <laughs> you shall not murder is the next thing. Cain and Abel. I, I don't know. I'm, I'm wondering. I'm grappling with that, chewing that over. Um, but clearly don't murder. That's not a good thing to do. Um, <laughs> uh, don't commit adultery, which would actually be to make the lineage from which the seed is meant to come impure. Uh, and there's something about marriage covenant there, um, which actually is arguably what people are moving going into at this point they're essentially going into a marriage covenant with God and just as you don't commit adultery within a marriage covenant I think part of the implication is and don't do that with God as well in this covenant you're going into uh, stealing false testimony uh, which is actually particularly in relation to the neighbours which as you're about to go into nations where other nations are looking at you and the way you interact with one another part of the point is you've got to live as a kingdom of truth (laughs) in order to communicate that to the world around you. And then all this stuff about coveting, which is it's all numbered slightly differently according to your tradition, but you should not covet your neighbour's house or wife or servant, ox, donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbour, which is suddenly quite broad. Um, and I think if you can get that, you become the kind of people who won't break the other commandments. Because if you're not coveting someone's donkey, you're not going to try and take it. If you're not coveting your neighbour's wife, you're not going to try and sleep with her. But, you know, so... But what's weird about these final ones, any, any fans of the West Wing here? Yeah. So what's complicated about these final things? Remember, what would Sam Seaborn say about these final verses? There's an episode where, I think, is it a school or somewhere in Alabama wants to like, basically change their constitution for their town to only be the Ten Commandments? And he says, that's not going to work. Because... <laughs> How can you tell if someone is coveting something else? Like, there's no sign of that. It's utterly unenforceable, which is really interesting, isn't it? The final commandments, no one can say, I think, I think, you, just, I think you just coveted that guy's donkey. <laughs> no, I didn't. <laughs> prove it. <laughs> I can't prove it. <laughs> it's known only to you and to God, isn't it? So, so actually, we often think about the law as being like, here are the things to do and not do, and if you do these things, you get punished, and if you don't do them, or whatever. But they should be clearly visible, and some of them definitely are, but actually some of them here are about heart attitude in a way that can't be enforced. So this tells us that our very Western definition of law, which is often very like down the line, straight, like every word, you, you know where you stand and you can consult something if you don't know where you stand. Like, I don't think that's what's going on here. This is more like wisdom in order to cultivate a heart attitude to be the kind of people that God calls you to be. Does that make sense? So when Jesus says, um, you have heard it said, but I say to you, um, and he seems to deepen the law to something internal, we often go, oh, wow, like, no one saw it like that up to this point. They all thought it was keep this law, which is an external thing, and Jesus internalises it and said, it's really about your heart. And there is a sense in which that is true because the Jewish traditions had become fixated on the external. But right at the beginning, God is concerned with the heart. It's not like he suddenly just went, well, I tried this external thing, that didn't work, so let's go for your heart. (laughs) It was always about the heart. It was always about becoming the kind of people who live a life of wisdom and are able to do the sort of things that God has created us to do. Does that make sense? Wonderful. 
There's loads more we could say about that, but I think that actually everything we covered in those two pages gives us, for me at least, it gives us a fresh approach to the law. It's not do these strict rules in order to be saved. It's you are saved. Here's how to live as part of the family of God for the purpose that everyone else will look and go, that's such an attractive way to live. I want to do that. And it's not fixated on just keep these rules. It's about be the kind of people who would do these sorts of things without having to have the laws prescribed. And then from here on, you do get more laws prescribed. So actually, then chapters 21 to 23 contain 52 more commandments about worship, community life, and social justice. And even they aren't exhausted. And then, of course, you get Leviticus, which gives us a ton more. But arguably, I think God probably wanted to stop with a few. Because if we did these 10, we wouldn't need the other 52, and we wouldn't need the rest of the books. I think it's because we failed to do the heart stuff. (laughs) Um, And actually, arguably, wanted... No, 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 give me the real details so I know exactly where I stand <laughs> so we can have this external thing that God created more law. Um, but the aim was the heart. Does that make sense? And so, having said in 19 verse 8, we will do this. <laughs> and then God gives them some more laws. Chapter 20, verse 18. What do they say? Now, when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning, so God coming in power, and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. I mean, of course they were. (laughs) I would be afraid and tremble. And they stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. So having gone, yes, we want a relationship with this God, they're like, oh gosh, he's actually a bit terrifying. What we need is someone to stand in between us and you, you tell us. You just tell us what he wants us to do and we'll do that. And so they choose to operate towards God, probably as they operated towards Pharaoh. Basically say, I want to operate on slavery terms. (laughs) You tell me what to do. You're scary. I want to hold you at a distance. They don't want to relate to God with the same level of intimacy that he wants to relate to them with. And so Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. That's weird. <laughs> um, actually, I'm going to preach tomorrow at two services in Fallowfield, and probably in the morning, I haven't worked out which way around. No, I'll probably do it in the evening. I'm going to preach on the fear of the Lord. And one of the things that strikes me about this is how weird this, this verse is. It says, don't be afraid. God has given you the fear of the Lord for a particular purpose, which is so you don't do sin. So... Don't be afraid, but fear the Lord. <laughs> like, what is going on there? I think what he's saying is God is mighty and awesome, but the kind of fear that he is trying to instill in you is, I think the way I'll put it tomorrow is this, like, there's a fear that falls back that says, like, get, get away from me, like, get away from me. And that's what the people do. They say, I don't, I don't want to be near this God. But there's another kind of fear that falls forward, which is to say, I want to be in this presence of this God, but I recognise he is still mighty and powerful, and so I do so with reverence and fear. And so God says, uh, Moses is saying, oh, don't want you to have the fear that falls back, which is the, you talk to him, I can't do that. I want you to have the fear that falls forward, which is worship and reverence. And when you have that kind of fear, which is not being afraid, but having the fear of the Lord, the true fear of the Lord, which is the beginning of wisdom, then that will keep you from sinning because you won't want to defile this beautiful relationship that he's brought you into. Does that make sense? Good, that was a great trial run of my sermon for tomorrow. <laughs> it made sense. <laughs> Wonderful. Although I've learned that when I'm down on the floor, people of that can't see me, so I'll rethink that for tomorrow. But there you go. Um, 
great. So Peter Enns actually puts it like this. He says, he's, he says it's basically, do not be afraid. God is giving you a taste of himself so that this memory will stick with you to keep you from sinning. That's what the fear of the Lord is about. Yeah. Great. <laughs> How on earth are we going to get through this? Um, if you're able to, why don't you stand up and stretch? And if you need the toilet, you're welcome to go to the toilet. And you can continue stretching or just chat to people around you for a moment. Uh, those who are going to the toilet will go to the toilet. Um, we will start back as soon as they're arriving back. So let's crack on if that's all right. I want us to get through this bit. Um, not to worry you, but we've got four pages out of 17 left to go. <laughs> we're not going to get through this in depth. But um, Okay, let's, um, we're going to move on through this quite fast. Um, but I hope that I've given you enough tools within here. So actually, I might not take as many questions in this bit, just so we can get through it. But at the end, I'll, I'll hang around as long as I need to. Very, like, please do come and ask questions. The next thing that happens um, is... So that the, God has said in, Ex, in Exodus 19 that he wanted to dwell among the people, and they say, yes, we'll do it. Then he gives the covenant terms, and again they say, we'll do it. So chapter 24, um, verse 3, Moses came and told the people the word of the Lord and all the rules, and all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words that the Lord has spoken we will do. Yes! <laughs> yeah. And then they go through this ritual, which includes... Blood, which is the way you make the covenant. They beheld God. They ate and drank. There's a ceremony. It's basically like a wedding night. It's basically like a wedding celebration as they enter into and celebrate this relationship with God. Then, box two, Moses ascends the mountain. Exodus 24, 15 to 18. Moses went up on the mountain and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called out to Moses um, out of the midst of the cloud. Now, there was, now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of all the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain and Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. Think about this for a moment. Moses on a mountain. What mountain? Also known as... Last time he was there, there was something that was on fire, but it wasn't consumed. Yes. Moses now enters into, essentially not into the bush, but into the, the fiery presence of God, and he is not consumed. But there's something about days, six days and a seventh day. So what does that remind you of? Creation. Creation. Yeah. Ezekiel tells us that Eden was on a mountain. <laughs> so here we have this mountain top where Moses has gone into the presence of God, it's essentially a recapitulation of Eden, where you had six days of creation. On the seventh day, God rested. And the idea of rest, I don't know if you looked at this last time, but it's the idea of God taking up residence in his temple. So Eden is the first garden temple. And this is basically like a renewed Eden. So six days, and then the seventh day is I enter into my rest. And Moses goes in, and he isn't consumed. And then, Exodus 25 to 31, God gives... Moses, a whole load of instructions for how to build a tabernacle, a tent, the purpose of which was so that God could dwell among his people. 
Chapter 25, the Lord said to Moses, speak to the people of Israel that they may take for me a contribution from every man whose heart moves among you should receive this contribution. This is the contribution you should receive. Gold, silver, bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns, etc, etc, etc. Bear that in mind for a moment. So they get this contribution from the people in order to build the tabernacle. If you flick to the next page for a moment, you will see a picture of the tabernacle. Um, and we could spend a day on the tabernacle. <laughs> um, but essentially, God has agreed to dwell with his people. The people agree with that. Moses goes up to the mountain for four days and God says, here is how I want to dwell amongst you. In this scene that is totally reminiscent of Eden. And he basically gives them this picture of a sanctuary for him to dwell there. And he says, make this tabernacle and all its furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. So God is the architect of this temple. And you can look at the picture, but basically it's Eden. <laughs> so there are three sections, like the division of the Garden of Eden. Um, there's an east-facing entrance guarded by cherubim. When the people got kicked out of Eden, which gate did they go out of? The east. And what was put in the way to stop them getting back in? Cherubim. There's gold and precious jewels. If you compare it, it's the same gold and precious jewels that was there in Eden. There are wood carvings of gourds and like vegetables. It's reminding us of this fertile garden space. There is a lampstand that looks like a tree. Hmm. Hmm. <laughs> Where have I seen that before? It's the tree of life. There's also then tablets of Torah, which gives you the knowledge of good and evil. <laughs> um, there is also this covering, which you can sort of see on the picture, but if you look at the description, it's blue, and it's essentially the night sky. It's the firmament that covers over the garden. There are seven speeches associated with the creation of the tabernacle. And then seven, actually, with the creation of the temple. Why seven? Because of the seven days of the creation of the first Eden temple. Yeah. Um, and then Exodus 31, God says, See, I've chosen Bezalel, son of Uri, the son of Hur, and the tribes of Judah, and I've filled him with the Spirit of God, with wisdom and understanding and knowledge and all kinds of skills in order to make this thing. So God's the architect. How does he do it? He makes it through the Spirit. It's Eden. <laughs> God is creating Eden. He's saying, I've not given up on my original purposes. I want to dwell in this place with my people. And the Spirit is given to achieve it. And God is actually enthroned above the Ark of the Covenant in the most holy place. And the way the tabernacle is structured, and maybe you'll look at this when you get to Leviticus, I don't know, but um, or, or the other books. Um, the way it's structured is basically the closer you get to the enthronement of God, the holier it gets. And therefore the implications grow as you go through. Like I said, there's loads more we could say about that, but back to, the, back to the previous page. So Moses ascends the mountain. It's this Eden-like scene, and God gives him a pattern for how to build a portable Eden so that he can dwell amongst them. What's happening down the bottom of the mountain? They are worshipping and just keeping the quiet times and being faithful to all the covenant <laughs> and not. So they are down the bottom of the mountain. Uh, can someone read to us Exodus 32 verses 1 to 6? When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, Come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what happened to him. Aaron answered them, Take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons and your daughters are wearing and bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. 
He took what they handed him and made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. Then they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, Tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. So the next day the people rose early and sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. Afterwards they sat down, sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. Oh man. <laughs> Come on! You just said, we'll do everything. We'll do anything. <laughs> oh man. Oh. And I would be the same. And you would be the same. Happening up there? Yeah. Yeah. And and the point Moses said that terrifying stuff is meant to make you not sin. And they look at the terrifying stuff and go, that must have killed Moses. Guess we're going to sin then. And they do the very opposite of what it's intended to do. It's crazy, isn't it? So, what what do they want? What? Why do they do it? They see that Moses is gone, and I think what they want is they actually want God. They actually want God to be with them. They can't relate to a God like that. So what they say is, well, let's make a God that we can relate to, that we can see that's here, not up there if he even is up there. Like, so they create something physical. And I think actually what they're creating is, I don't think they're creating a new God. Let's like make a new God from scratch. Because they actually say, these are the gods that lead you out, led you out of Egypt. They, they, they're making what they think is a physical representation of the gods. Yeah, so it's not like a brand new one. They actually think they are making a representation of Yahweh. Because then Aaron says, tomorrow we're going to have a festival to Yahweh, right? So they think this is Yahweh. But if they're going to make anything of Yahweh, which is a bad idea, why not a lamb? Well, they're just told not to. Yeah, they're not told to do it at all. And they go, well, forget that. Well, let's make him. Let's make him like, oh, I don't know. What would be simple? Oh, a lamb. Yeah, that was really simple. No, they make a calf. Like, it's stupid. But it's a parody of Passover, isn't it? Because they're eating and they're feasting and they're celebrating. But it's a complete parody of this thing that we just ended a session worshipping about. And they do the opposite. And what do they use to make it? Gold. Gold out of the... Yeah. And what was the point of the gold? What was God telling them to do with the gold? The, the tabernacle, yeah. So the, the literal stuff that they're ma- meant to use to rebuild Eden, <laughs> the dwelling place of God, they're like, eh, we'll just make a cow. It, it, the irony of it is shocking. But actually what's happening here, if you think Eden's happening up on the mountain, the plans for a new Eden, this is the fall, all over again, but now not just with one couple, but with the whole nation. And that's the way that the rabbis thought of this, is this is essentially the national version of the fall. So there are two quotes here from um, Jewish writings. Uh, the, the bottom one, there is not a generation of Israel that does not suffer at least a particle for the punishment for the sin of the golden calf. Essentially, this was such a defining moment. At the moment, it's like, right, starting from scratch. It's like my new Adam and Eve, my new image bearers. Go and multiply. And they fall as Adam and Eve did. And this is essentially original sin on a national scale. Yeah. So what does Moses do? The final box on this page. And I know I'm rushing through this very quickly, but Moses intercedes for the people. And we could look at the way his intercessions go, but essentially it goes roughly like this. Lord, don't let the Egyptians mock you by destroying these people. Because they'll go, well, he only took them out and then he destroyed them. So what kind of God is he? Like, don't do that. And keep your covenant to Abraham. 
Petition two, forgive them, Lord. Or if you're not going to forgive them, take me in their place. Blot my name out of your book instead. Essentially, he offers himself as the substitute, like the Passover lamb. Like someone else, I can't. Yeah, but anyway. Uh, The third one, teach me your ways, Lord. Remember, this nation is your people. And then actually, look at this, chapter 33, verse 14. I can't resist. Um, I know I've got a rush, but... (laughs) And God said, my presence will go with you and I'll give you rest. Do you know what that word rest is? It's Noah. (laughs) Noah's name literally means rest. So you get these people who are like Moses in the ark and then coming through the sea. He said, I'll make you a new Noah. (laughs) I'll give you rest. And of course, it ties into the Sabbath themes as well. Yeah. The fourth petition, God says, uh, Moses says, go with us. So the nations you will know, will know, so the nations will know that you are with us. We don't want to go without you. <laughs> because the point is that the nations are meant to look at us and know God is here. So show me your glory, he says. And then there's a break, which we'll look at in a second. In chapter 34, he comes back and he says, Lord, forgive us and take us as your inheritance. It uses a different word to segula. It's not the same word for inheritance, treasure, possession as before, but it's that same idea. Where are they? Where is Moses at this point? I'm laboring this point. Where is he? No, he's... Ah, well, yes. He's actually... No, but he's going back up to meet God on the mountain. So they're at the mountain, Sinai, also known as Horeb. What happened last time he was here? Burning bush, etc. Five times Moses failed God or denied God before. Five times now he intercedes. It's a beautiful parallel, again, I think. The five times that he said, I'm not up to this, actually he shows himself to be strangely up to this, although deeply flawed as well. And I think that's beautiful. It's like this restoration moment of him. But in between four and five is this break where he says, show me your glory. And that's sort of where I want to end today. So if you flick ahead two pages, the whole book is about God revealing his glory and unpacking his character. But these two verses do it better than any other bit, I think, because of the culmination of the story. Exodus 34, 6 to 7. So Moses asks to see God's glory and God passes by and he shows him a glimpse, but he only shows him his back. And then he reveals to him his name. And this is basically like a recapitulation of what happened last time Moses was here. There he said, five times he failed and then God said, here's my name. Now five times he intercedes and God says, here's my name and here are some of the implications of it. And he unpacks not only his name, but his nature. Would someone read, and actually if you can read from the version I put in the notes, just because I put the words in a helpful way, I hope. Um, Would someone read these verses, Exodus 34, 6 to 7. Yahweh, Yahweh, a God compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, overflowing with loyal love and faithfulness. He maintains loyal love for thousands to the thousandth generation, forgiving iniquity, transgression and sin. Yet he won't declare innocent the guilty. He will bring the iniquities of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generation. Wish I had a day on this alone. <laughs> like you, could, you could unpack this for hours and hours. And in fact, um, something that will do a way better job than I will in 10 minutes. Um, there's the Bible Project, which is just incredible. Um, 
uh, they have a series of videos on the character of God, sort of five minutes each, unpacking what some of what we're about to pack, unpack now, not all of it. And then they also have a podcast series alongside where they talk about it, it's about 14 hours. So <laughs> the, the five minute versions will get you through what we're gonna cover now, but actually there's so much depth to this. Um, totally recommend them. But what we see here, I think, is seven things about God, five characteristics about who he is, that then result in two things that he does. And I don't want to draw too clear a distinction between that because they overlap, but I think the first five things are descriptions of the core heart of God, and the final two are things that flow out of results that come out of the core heart of God. And it begins by saying Yahweh, Yahweh. So this repetition of the name that Moses was first given at this mountain now has given it in more depth. And it's repeated to emphasize the uniqueness. And this is, again, remember, this is primarily focused on how God is revealing himself to his people, not for the other nations. Actually, this verse is the most, well, these two verses are the most quoted in the Old Testament. Um, and what's really interesting is if you go through all the quotations, you can see how people understood this, actually taking it into different contexts, thinking about how it applies to the other nations. But right now, this is God's revelation to his people, for his people, and how he's interacting with them. And it's essentially a commentary on what he's just done in terms of forgiving them for the breaking of the covenant with the golden calf. He's acting why he's acted the way he did in the previous scene with the golden calf, where he forgave the people and did not wipe them out. So let's just go through them. Firstly, God reveals himself as being compassionate. And the Hebrew word rachum is related to the word rachem, which means womb. So to be compassionate means to be womby, <laughs> uh, which is to say to love someone with the kind of love that a mother has for her offspring. When God says he is compassionate, that's what it means. Isaiah 49 says, Can a woman forget her nursing child and have no compassion, rachamim, on the son of her womb? The God who rescued his son loves his son like a mother unfailingly loves her daughter or her son or her child. That's the compassion of God. And the compassion of God almost always, whenever this word is used, it's never just, oh, I feel so bad for you or I love you from a distance. It always is compassion that moves to action in the same way that if you have a child who is in deep need, you, you love them and you move from love into action on their behalf. And when God shows his compassion, it always results in him blotting out sins, rescuing people, stepping in to intervene in the way that a father or a mother does for their child. He is gracious. The word ken means favour. And it's often coupled with rakum. So compassionate and gracious often go together in scripture. Because God doesn't only feel compassionate towards someone and act upon that, but he even does it when they don't deserve it as well, which again is a trait of a good father or mother. In Psalm 45, the word is used to describe beauty. The poet has lips of grace. Um, in Proverbs, wisdom is an ornament of grace. So grace is something beautiful, but it's most beautiful when it's given to someone who doesn't deserve it. And that's how God treats us. And the prophets, when they talk about the grace of God, um, they talk about it as being something that God has demonstrated in the past and we can rely on him constantly demonstrating in the future. So they appeal to his grace 
and say, Lord, you have shown this through your mighty acts. Would you do it again? And it's such a reliable part of his character, motivated by his womb-like compassion. And consistently, when we look at how grace is referred to in the Old Testament in particular, and then, of course, into the New Testament as well, it's something that when we recognise our need for it, God doesn't withhold it from us. We have to recognise our need for it and then reach out to him and he consistently gives it. Thirdly, he is slow to anger, which, which literally means long of nose. I love that. In the Old Testament, the Hebrew words most commonly used for anger are nose or heat. If someone is angry, they are described as being hot-nosed, which I really love. And it sounds a bit weird to us, but actually think, if you're angry and you want to send an emoji to someone, what do you do? You send the one with a red face or the one with the steam coming out of the nose. Because <laughs> we talk about getting red in the face, angry. We snarl when we're angry. And it's that kind of idea. When someone is angry, they're hot-nosed. But God is long of nose, which means what? It takes a long time for him to get angry. Yeah, so we have short noses comparatively. <laughs> metaphorically and literally most of you <laughs> all of you <laughs> but God's nose is long in so much as it takes way longer for him to reach boiling point than it does for us he is slow to anger and we've seen this through the story I mean Moses refused God five times God kept giving him chances and then he actually was restored Moses gave uh, Pharaoh was given ten chances which is double the amount given to Moses, actually. <laughs> God is slow to anger. He does get angry, and it's important that he gets angry, because if he didn't, particularly with slavery and injustice like that, if he didn't get angry, he would be an unjust God. But he's slow to anger. He's measured. Four, he is overflowing with loyal love. The word hesed there is really difficult to translate. Maybe some of, them, some of your Bibles probably say different things there. Um, Loyal love, I think, is a good translation for it. Um, it's a promise-keeping loyalty that is motivated by deep care. And uh, The Book of Ruth is probably a, the best example of hesed, uh, love in action. Um, she, she entrusts herself to the God of hesed, of loyal love, and then she actually embodies loyal love as well to those around her. And um, yeah, we don't have time to get into that. But essentially, it's promise-keeping love. And... It says he maintains loyal love for thousands. Um, actually, probably it's, it's thousands of generations. Um, it's not explicitly said there. It's also not explicitly said there with third and fourth uh, at the end. But if you look at Deuteronomy 7, 9, it, it says there in the same sort of thing, it's to a thousand generation. So his loyal love, his promise-keeping love, extends to the thousandth generation and he's not only overflowing with loyal love, he's also overflowing with faithfulness. The word there, emet, it means truth. Um, and it has the idea of stability. So in Exodus 17, you've got the battle against the Amalekites. And they're winning all the while that Moses' hands are held up, right? But Moses is tired, and so his hands start to droop. And so they get a rock, and they position it there, and they hold his arms up so that his arms are emet, steady, steadfast. The battle can be won because they're not, they're not wavering, they're not drooping, they're not, he's not getting tired. God is faithful, he's emet, he's steadfast. When Moses picks leaders, he picks leaders who are emet, which is committed to truth, but they're also steadfast. They're not like here one moment and then they change, that they're consistent. And these are five characteristics of 
who God is and how he acts. And because of that, because these are his core character traits, therefore, 6 and 7, he forgives iniquity, transgression and sin. And we take that for granted because we've read the story and we know how it ends. But if this is probably your f- one of your first encounters with God and you've lived with multiple other gods who are capricious, who change their minds, who are unreliable, like when Moses is appealing five times, I don't know if he thinks that God is actually going to forgive. Which is probably why he says, actually, if you can't forgive these people, just take me. Like he's bartering with him on whatever terms because he doesn't know at this point that God is forgiving. And yet God is saying to him, well, actually, this is a core part of my character. And so what we take for granted must have been the terrifying, like unknown for Moses. But yeah, God says that he forgives because he's loyal towards us. He keeps his promises. He is gracious. But he brings iniquity upon people. He won't declare the innocent guilty which I don't think he's saying, like, I won't ever do that. I think he's saying, I won't just arbitrarily do that. I won't just overlook sin, because that will be unjust. I think the implication is that actually, if people ask him for grace, then of course he's going to forgive. But he won't just turn a blind eye to it. But it does say he will bring the iniquities of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generation, which is tricky. <laughs> um, third and fourth, the word generation is not there in the text, but I think it's implied by the text. Um, and there is a tension here in how we work this out, and if I had longer, I would unpack it in more detail, but I think essentially what it's saying is that there is a reliability about God's nature, and in a world of capricious gods, he is showing himself to be completely trustworthy and steadfast in both his judgment and upholding of justice and his forgiveness. So if he were unreliable and had a habit of just turning a blind eye to sin, we couldn't trust his justice. So it's important that he does judge, but he's also completely reliable in his forgiveness of sins. And those two things held together, although they feel difficult to us, because we're like, oh, sins of the fathers on the children. Actually, it's good news. The tension comes in the fact that Ezekiel 18 says, the child will not share the guilt of the parent, nor will the parent share the guilt of the child. (laughs) So here, God says, I will punish to the third or fourth generation. Ezekiel says, that's not how God works. So there there is a bit of a tension here, and if we have more time, we can unpack this, but the quick answer is, Deuteronomy 5, 9 to 10, when it says the same sorts of things, it says, to the third or fourth generation of those who hate me, which clarifies this point. So God is not saying, if a father does this, his children and their children are just stuffed. (laughs) He's saying, if a father does this, and then the next generation continues the sin of the father, they become the next generation of those who hate me, as in they continue the sin of the father. I mean, Genesis is just cycles of the sins of fathers, isn't it? So a father fails. What does his next children do? They walk in the same way as the father. And each generation is judged on the basis of their response, whether they look more like their father or they turn to God. So to be really clear, I don't think that God judges through generational sin. I think Ezekiel makes that really clear. And I don't think that's what's going on in this passage. And that's a big, uh, complex thing. I think there are effects of the decision of one generation upon the other. Certain things get passed down. But God is saying that I judge each generation on the basis of their response to me. And what's really important is he limits it to three or four. Whereas his love is limited to thousands, right? And if a generation, in biblical terms, is roughly 37 to 40 years, that's 
not a lot in terms of the, the judgment. It's about 40,000 years worth of his love and faithfulness. <laughs> and however you date the Bible, let's say we're 6,000 years away from him making this promise. We've got a lot of his faithfulness left to go. <laughs> so his, his faithfulness and his forgiveness and his love way outstretches his judgment. He is just, and we can rely on him to be that, but he's way more forgiving and faithful. To the point where actually, as I said, this is the most quoted verse in the Old Testament. Sometimes people quote it in a slightly negative way because they don't like the fact that he is loving. <laughs> so think about Jonah. He doesn't want to go to Nineveh. And when he explains why, what does he say? So I know that you're loving. I know you're forgiving. I didn't want you to be. <laughs> I wanted you to execute judgment and I knew that if I take this message of course they're going to repent and if they do they're going to get saved and I don't want that and people realize the implications of the extravagant love of God there's a bit in Jeremiah I have the reference actually I think it's three times maybe God says don't pray for the Israelites and it's not entirely clear why but it seems almost like God is saying oh please don't pray for them because I've decided I'm going to punish them and God isn't a pushover but it's almost like he's saying if you intercede <laughs> My character, my love, my inclination towards forgiveness is so strong that I'll have to answer that prayer, which is a weird tension. God's love is just so abundant, so beautiful. It's almost like he can't, can't resist because <laughs> this is who God is. And this is just a beautiful moment that I think can easily get lost in the mixture of all the other laws and we look at all the difficult stuff that comes before this and the tricky stuff that comes after with the building of the tabernacle which is a repeat of all that other stuff and it's a little bit dull and we can easily miss this but this is you know when john says god is love he's basically saying in a couple of words what what exodus says here and the rest of the bible grapples with and it's absolutely beautiful and so just to land it in three minutes <laughs> this is just this incredible picture and Moses then appeals once more, and God has forgiven the people. And so he gets on with the task of building the tabernacle. Despite the people essentially falling again, he still builds Eden. And that's how the book ends. And the next page, it says, The cloud covered the tent of meeting. The glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. God has taken up rest in Eden. Moses could not enter the tent of meeting. What a miserable end to the book. <laughs> Like God has rebuilt Eden, he's come back to his people and Moses can't go in. And you're left thinking, is there any hope at all? And so then Leviticus picks up with that question. Like, how can you get into the presence of God? And that's why the laws come, to answer the problem here in this final verse. But Leviticus doesn't even answer it. To answer the true problem, you have to skip ahead to the New Testament. And the true answer is not the law, it's Jesus. And in John chapter 1, in a way that I wish we had time to go through, it's basically the story of Genesis and Exodus, recapped and shown how it's all shoved into this one person, Jesus. So in the beginning, how does the Bible begin? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It's like they say, in the beginning, God, and stick some stuff in the beginning. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and he created all things. Life and light. The creator God who's always faithful to his covenant, has come in the person of Jesus. who was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came to bring witness to the light. He came to that which was his own, the chosen people, who didn't receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, those who believed in his name. What did God reveal to Moses? His, his name. <laughs> 
He gave the right to become children of God, sons of Israel. Not born of natural descent, nor human decision, but, nor a husband's will, but born of God. His grace draws people into the family of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Do you know what that word is? He pitched his tent. He made his tabernacle among us. Jesus is the tabernacle of God. John is wanting us to see. We've seen his glory. What did Moses just say? Show me your glory. And he saw the back of God. In Jesus, we see the face of God. The glory of the one and only son. Jesus is the firstborn son, the true son who comes to rescue us all and make us all sons, who came from the father full of grace and truth. And many scholars point out that the, the way that grace and truth is used here is basically the equivalent of the overflowing love and faithfulness. It's a reference back to Exodus 34. Jesus is the embodiment of that depiction of God. And then it goes on, it says, out of his fullness we have received grace in place of grace already given. The law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. We often think the law is a negative thing, but grace came in the New Testament. That's not what John says. He says it's grace upon grace. So you already had grace because God rescued his people irrespective of what they had done. Then he gave them the law, which was an act of grace, a way of saying, this is how you live. And then Jesus came not to say, oh, let's get rid of that law and I'll bring you something new, grace. No, it's grace upon grace. Jesus is the fulfillment of all of this. And he is the way that we get to experience God's presence. No one has ever seen God. Why? Because Moses couldn't go in to the temple. But the one and only son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. And the Greek word there is the word from which we get exegesis, which is how you explain <laughs> these things. Jesus is the exegesis of God, <laughs> which is just a beautiful, beautiful way of tying this all together. And so even though we end Exodus, and we'll end this session now by saying, God has rescued his people and brought them to a place where he longs to dwell amongst them in this new Eden, and they have shown themselves unable to go in. And none of the rest of the Old Testament attempts to get back in through the law, through sacrifices, none of them ultimately succeed. There is one who has come, pitched his tabernacle among us, shown us the glory that Moses only got a glimpse of, but now he's shown it in full. He's shown what grace and truth really look like in action. And now anyone who responds to him can have that blood over the lintel, they're set free, they're allowed back into Eden. That's what we're in. It doesn't look like we're in Eden, but we are. <laughs> That's, we are in the presence of God, and actually the presence of God is within us. And so even though Exodus actually ends on a low, it points to a high. And so that's where I want us to end now. And I've gone slightly over time, but would you just let me pray um, to end? And then we didn't have time to take any questions on that, but please do come and ask me at the end. I'd, I'd happily talk further. But thank you, Jesus, that you have not given up on us. Thank you that you came, you stepped into this world to give us grace upon grace. And man, we need your grace because we mess up time and time and time again. I thank you that you have come to show us what Moses could only glimpse in part. And even though we have seen you in full, there's still much more that we don't understand about you. And I look forward to that day when we truly will be in the new creation, in the new Eden, and we will get to be with you forever. But right now, we just take delight in the fact that our sins are forgiven that your graciousness, your loyal, compassionate, womb-like love extends to us in everything that we have done unto this point. And I know I am going to go out of this door today and fail to bear your image in probably many ways over the next days and week. And I know 
that though I will try, your grace and your love and your forgiveness extends over everything that I'm yet to do as well. And I know that you are committed to turning us into being the image bearers that we're meant to be, transforming us more and more into your likeness. And that's what we want, Lord. And I pray that you would empower us today as your sons, as it were, to live as your image bearers so that people will see your wisdom on display in our lives and say, I want to know the God that empowers people to live like that. That mission that you had of raising up people, raising up a nation to be a light to the nations, we want to continue that. And I pray that we would live in such a way, empowered by your spirit, that there'd be something so attractive that people come to us and say, I want to know the God who empowers you to live that way. And I pray that if we take anything away from today, it will be that. That you want to bless us to be a blessing. And that we have the privilege of being like temples of the spirit, tabernacles of the spirit. Portable versions of your presence living in such a way that people through us can see you. So would you fill us afresh with your presence right now and send us out into the rest of this day and weekend and all that lies ahead of us, empowered to live for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.